Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies? I know this is a formidable technical task, one that may not be accomplished by Technologies, the high-flying hardware computer company which took a nosedive this year, may be bought out by the British firm Applied Computer Technologies. Piloting the space shuttle is very difficult to do, one would think. Can a, a, a kid or a normal person actually pull this off? Well, what I did when I designed this was I, I understood that problem. Uh, it seems the sweep of technology has no limits. San Francisco this week, the world's first robot bartender was unveiled. The robot can talk, can take spoken orders, and can mix 200 different drinks. But on the first test run, the robot knocked a glass off the bar and onto the floor and poured beer all over the counter. The robot's designer said there were still some bugs to be worked out. Everybody, thank you guys so much for bearing with us. Uh, Georgie and I were just talking about the revital, uh, revitalization of feudalism. Georgie, that's right. Yeah, or, or, or worse, like even before that, maybe like I don't know, Roman Empire times, um, the Dark Ages and before. Yeah, well, not uh, one of the biggest criticisms of our repeat episodes are they are a big downer, and so yeah. maybe we sh- shouldn't get too down that road. But how how is your life in uh, DC? Um, mine, mine is okay. It will be inter- right now. It's fine because we're still in the during the summer. Um, but it will be interesting in about in a few weeks because school is supposed to start and school is is all virtual. Um, uh, and it's really it's 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 tragic because the mayor here, who actually I kind of like her, but you know she's it's quite clear that the the decision is political. So she's banned all in-person teaching at public schools, but she's allowed the private schools to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. including having like full enrollment, no social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, you know, it is quite obvious what's going on. You know, these these are money-making institutions and you want the tax revenue. And if you if you impede with their, you know, with their business, they're gonna they're gonna complain and probably sue, right? 
but the public schools, you know, you, you kind of you're trying to appease your employees, and it's much harder for the general public to sue and force the public schools to be open. It's like the courts have generally sided with the authorities on what the authorities think is best when it comes to public educational institutions or even really public institutions in general. But when it comes to the private businesses, all bets are off. You know, you you know, she let them do whatever they want. And now everybody who has children in, in public schools are basically scrambling. Uh, and some people, uh, maybe about 30% of my friends have left the city because they don't, they cannot continue working full time from home and also handling one or more children. This is just not, not humanly possible. Um, you know, and they're, they're trying to go back to their families and, you know, somehow like pool resources and have somebody take care of the children if they can. Um, in some cases, their their employers are saying, no, you're remote, but you have to stay in the area, um, which to me makes even less sense. It's like, if everybody's remote, why does it matter where you're working from? Like, what's the what's going to happen? Like, at some point, the CEO of a company is going to call like an all hands on deck meeting. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're in Canada or like Europe, you somehow cannot attend. I mean, if you're going to be all remote by default, then you should be letting, should be allowing people to go wherever they want to go. I mean, unless there's some some people working for the government, there are restrictions. You 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 know, U.S. government information can only stay within the within the the physical, the geographical borders of the United States. So those people, for those people, I understand. But for the private companies, I mean, I have friends working for private companies in the area, and um, two out of the five that I know of have said, "Yeah, you're remote, but uh, we really, you cannot, you cannot." Just pick up and go and go and live in in Europe. If you do, we're gonna change your salary, and we're gonna we're basically gonna lower it. So it's uh, <laughs> it's just that you know I I think this whole virus situation is providing a lot of opportunity for people to um, exploit the situation um, to their benefit, mostly corporations, but also governments. Um, I mean, it's quite obvious that DC wants a tax revenue at the same time that they want to um, kind of like keep the tax revenue the same in terms of like how much we pay uh, out of our taxes for schools, but they want to provide a lot like, um, you know, a much smaller amount of service, right? Uh, you know, like, let's say if you're paying uh, 20% of your tax dollars go towards towards public schools um, and before they were open, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week. Now the state is saying, okay, if we can get away with providing one hour a day of remote learning five days a week, We've essentially basically like we've freed seven eighths of that extra tax revenue to go to something else. Um, I mean, it's it's and it, uh, at the last council meeting that I watched in DC, they're not even you know making making a secret of it anymore. They're openly discussing shifting the resources, the tax resources that were going to go towards education. Now they're saying, oh look, we can build a luxury condo over there <laughs> or uh, a business center slash mall over here. Uh, I mean. I guess that these are not bad bad decisions because DC does have some rough areas that can probably use the development um, and you know change in you know over and, and increasing the standard of living. But at the same time, we're not really given any choice in that. <laughs> we're just being told you guys handle it any any way you want. Um, but there's no there's not going to be any any in person school at least until November. And I think it's to me it's quite obvious this is just a you know something to to placate the anger. I don't think the schools are going to magically reopen in the middle of November after we've already been told 
DC has said officially they are expecting a second wave, as if it can be predicted. They're saying, we think that around December there will be a second wave <laughs> and it will be worse than the first one. Yeah. Okay, then uh, thank you for, for this forecast, like several months into the future. It's amazing how well they can predict the viral development. They can't predict what it's going to rain today, <laughs> even if there are clouds already in the sky. I mean, it's it's just amazing. <laughs> Uh, I wish it worked that well for all aspects of human life. Uh, give me a sign if you don't want to chat about this, but are you planning some kind of uh, escape kind of situation? Or um, <laughs> I don't know about escape, but uh, you know, uh, we're gonna we, we're gonna try the remote learning thing. I know it's gonna be a disaster because we already tried it over the summer. Mm -hmm. um, they send us surveys, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the three separate surveys where um, they ask like. What do you want? Like, what, what would you, what would be your ideal option? Full, fully reopen, like a mix of, let's say, two days in school and three days remote, or like all virtual. And then they, by mistake, they shared the results. <laughs> and in all three surveys, overwhelmingly, people said, "Open the damn schools because we're gonna kill each other at home, right?" And none of that happened, of course. So um, I don't know about escape. I mean, my uh, my wife's contract at the um, for the clinical trial that she was working on is is ending by the end of August. Mm -hmm. So she'll have some free time, you know, to uh, at least, we're probably going to somehow, you know, push through the fall and the winter. And if, if there is, if it doesn't look like schools are going to reopen and, and life will be, have at least some semblance of normalcy, um, then uh, we're probably going to hire the nanny that we used to have when the children were, were younger. Uh, and she's a retired teacher. So we're hoping that she can kind of pick this up and be a be an at-home teacher. So we are lucky in that respect. Most of the people that I know don't have these options. Mm -hmm. That's why they're moving back home with parents and relatives and whatnot. And um, and kind of saying like, there's no point being in the city. What's the point, right? I mean, work now. All almost all work is telling you be remote. You can't even come in if you want to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're telling you you will be remote for at least until 2021. And also we're telling you you know, your children can't go to school. So if neither one of these things, which is the two main reasons to be physically here, is no longer in effect, then um, there's no point, right? Um, I mean, I have the businesses, right? So I kind of have to be here. Uh, at least the Idea Labs business, you know, we're, we're shipping physical products. So it's like, I can't really <laughs> pick up and go to like, I don't know, Thailand. I would love to. <laughs> no, you don't want to come here. <laughs> uh, is it, is it, has it gone like full Brave New World? Or? I, I, well, I said this a hundred times, but I think things are farther along here than they, they might be other places. And so I feel like I'm living maybe like a, a few months into the future, maybe than other places. But yeah, man, like the masks are mandatory to get in anywhere and there's thermal. Where, where, what was I doing yesterday? Oh, I, I went to give blood. And they had like just a huge rigmarole, like a TSA setup for the hospital, you know. And so, uh, but but those those things are popping up more and more places, you know. But I I don't think like that is, is what I used to think is bad. But they're they're talking about planned food shortages and and things like that. That those are the really scary things. And so, like a TSA yeah. thermo body scanner isn't that scary, but food shortages or like messing with the currency and stuff that is i mean that affects everybody so um so speaking of that i mean since you asked about my escape option <laughs> if you remember in one of his interviews ray talked about a, a, a collapse and what one can do mm -hmm. and he said instead of like trying to save to hoard money and whatnot make sure you have a friend who has like a chicken farm mm -hmm. or a gold farm and whatnot mm -hmm. well i do have such a friend <laughs> he's uh maybe like 50 60 miles from here in shenandoah mm -hmm. 
um, which is like the just the beginning of the Appalachian region um, in in Virginia. Um, so he has a farm there. I've been giving him a little bit of money, like helping financially. Um, you know, he has some goats, some cows, some chickens. He's already full, fully on board feeding the chickens with liver and other kinds of like ruminant animal scraps and chickens love it. He's, he said they're starting to produce eggs where the yolk is so <laughs> dark orange that like we, he took some to the farmer's market and, you know, a few eggs broke and everybody was aghast. They're like, what are you selling? <laughs> like, why, is, why, are, why are they so dark? He's like, apparently that's how, that's how like eggs look in the wild. If like, if you look at a wild bird, if you actually accidentally crack an egg, it's really like the the egg yolk is really is really dark yellow, like dark, dark orange. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even amber in color. Mm-hmm. And that's because they're eating a lot more saturated fats, um, and it's just that they're li- apparently like the egg color also depends on the liver health of the animal. So the darker the color is, the more the healthier the animal is. And um, you know, just just try to compare, like like crack a you know an egg, you, you like a commercial egg you bought. Non-organic, just the regular one. Even the organics one are pretty abysmal, but just crack a regular egg and compare that one to like an egg. If you can get an egg from a farm where the chickens are free-ranging and where they eat a lot more worms and insects, and you'll see what a massive difference that is. But that's my that's my really my plan B. He has like a few rooms open. He's got like a massive barn house, and um, him and his wife are there, and they don't have children. And they're like, yeah, we we would love to have some children on the farm. You know, <laughs> you guys, feel free to stop by. So uh, I haven't yet decided what I'm going to do weapons-wise and money-wise. <laughs> but, I mean, you kind of have to. Like, if you're, if you're living in a nice farm and you're living relatively well, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if marauding hordes, like, start driving up from, like, D.C. and, and trying to, you know, upset that idyllic lifestyle. So, uh, but he's armed. He's heavily armed. <laughs> Most people in Virginia are. Uh, I'm just saying that I'm not. But, uh, I, you know, at some point, if things continue to get rougher... I will probably have to think about that too. Um, so yeah. On that note, uh, guys, w- <laughs> uh, subscribe to the BitChute channel. We have 42 subscribers. Very sad, but uh, I hear BitChute is um, there's like they're pump- putting lots of effort into it. Apparently, it doesn't seem like they've been doing that for the last few years, but apparently they now are. By popular demand, the show is now on uh, podcasts, so Anchor.fm and Spotify. And so if you type in Generative Energy Streams or Danny Roddy, you can find all of those episodes. And also they're normalized. And so some of these episodes, Georgie's mic is higher than mine is or Ray's is higher than uh, Georgie's. And so I ran all these episodes through a normalizer. And so they should sound slightly better. Follow Georgie on uh, Twitter.com slash hate it. Uh, follow me on Twitter.com slash Danny Rowdy, the Telegram, my Instagram, which I've been posting some clips of these uh, podcasts and live streams to idealabcc.com, Georgie's supplement company. Georgie, any uh, word on anything you're doing at the moment? Um, we, uh, I, think I'm, I think I mentioned this in the, uh, in the past, We're, we synthesized successfully a fatty acid oxidation inhibitor that's about 100 times more potent than Mildronate. Um, and they just completed the uh, the uh, to- toxicology testing in Bulgaria. Um, the, that's where the, all the chemists are. Um, and it looks like it's it's uh, about the same toxicity or even less so than meldonium, which is considered virtually non-toxic. So um, I'm hoping that by the end of this year, unless society collapses first, <laughs> <laughs> we should be able to have uh, a like a potent fatty acid oxidation inhibitor 
available for uh, for uh, to buy and there will be several studies related to that i mean all of this will be backed up by publications um another interesting one that I, we're working on right now is um we did some in vitro studies with pure pregnenolone and it looks like it's blowing standard drugs for treating bre- breast cancer out of the water so um it requires slightly higher concentration but it has no toxicity uh, and in comparison things like tamoxifen clomiphene like all of the other like serms or, or you know selective estrogen receptor modulators they have they have pretty serious cell toxicity at least in vitro and pregnenolone has mm-hmm. none like i'm, I'm emphasizing absolutely none mm-hmm. uh, so now we're going to follow up with a with an in vivo study with uh, mice and uh, that will be another i think it will be another good study because um, you know, pregnenolone is pretty widely available, um, and uh, it's one of the, unlike progesterone, which has, um, you know, quite a bit of studies behind it, and mostly because of the synthetic pr- uh, progestins, it's not, not so much the bioidentical one, using progesterone to treat breast cancer is more or less, medicine considers it, considers it, op- considers it obsolete, the case is closed. <laughs> yes, progesterone works, but we have better, newer, whatever, like more awesome drugs now, of course, none of that's true. But pregnenolone hasn't really been tested. Like if you try to find um, studies about pregnenolone, they're far and few in between um, and definitely not for cancer. So um, the results look really promising, at least in vitro. So we're going to now we're gonna follow up with the mouse study. And I'm hoping that, you know, we're going to have a pretty decent publication that basically says that um, hopefully shows that pregnenolone, because the in vitro was done both on estrogen uh, receptor in, on, in, on hormonally sensitive cancer cells and also the triple negative ones, and it was equally effective. So something there's something pregnenolone seems to be doing that the cells really like, um, and it's it's curing. I shouldn't say curing. It's treating the cancer without killing the cancer cells, which. You know, the cytotoxic approach, that has been the standard approach for treating cancer for the last 100 years. And it looks like pregnenolone may be able to, uh, just a very humble, average, cheap substance. Well, maybe not anymore after we publish that study. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems like it it may be able to do uh, everything that the breast cancer treating treatment industry couldn't do for over a century. So keeping fingers crossed. Awesome. Okay, idealfcc.com. And then, oh, I just closed the window. <laughs> and then I do uh, coaching, and you can find out more information about that at dannyreddy.com uh, slash resources. And this page is uh, functional, has lots of information on it. Okay. Um, and guys, give this episode a like. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I have to say that. And also subscribe. There's a lot of people that watch the show that aren't subscribed, so that helps us out as well. Um, Georgie, where should we start? So I have uh, low metabolism, cellular debris, Huntington disease, just estrogen directly causes PCOS, lab animals. Let's start a page uh, earlier. I kind of want to mention the naval application one because I've tried. um, So basically a study which shows that applying, they they use testosterone and they dissolved it in acetone, Mm -hmm. uh, just pure acetone, which evaporates so quickly I could not think if you know they could they could not have basically picked a worse solvent for this for this study and it still worked strikingly well. So, anyways, they dissolved testosterone in acetone, applied to the navel uh, area, and then achieved about eighty percent absorption compared to intravenous. And intravenous is the gold standard. You basically a hundred percent of the of the of the com- compound gets into the blood. Um, and then they also uh, applied the same testosterone dissolved in acetone to the skin. And they achieved 
50% of mm-hmm. corruption. So it's kind of like, I mean, I know Ray has said many times, if you're going to be using things on your skin, maybe like try to use like, I don't know, five to 10 times higher dosage. Did he say something along? Yeah. I seem yeah, to remember yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, Maybe it depends on the solvent because they used acetone, but acetone is actually worse in terms of transdermal penetration than, than something like ethanol because it evaporates much, much more quickly. Um, but their, their, their results are amazing. And I actually verified, uh, we have a few people, volunteers that are applying some of our products and it looks like it doesn't matter if you're using the ethanol version as a solvent or to, the tocopherol ones. But if you apply it to the navel area, actually, it, it does seem to absorb remarkably well and much more quickly, even if you're using the tocopherols as a solvent, which usually tend to absorb more slowly, right? You have to rub it in a larger area. It's It remains sticky slash oily, oily for a while. Uh, all, when you put a few drops in the navel area, within five minutes, you're already feeling the mm-hmm. effects. Um, and I've had uh, clients and people that follow me report that Progesti apparently works even better when applied to the navel area. So Ray Pete's product, uh, some people are complaining that because of the vitamin E, they're getting GI, uh, like uh, irritation of the of the intestine. Mm-hmm. And it's not the product. Vitamin E sometimes does cause that in some people, especially if it's an undiluted uh, vitamin E, which I think that's what Ray's products is almost completely based on vitamin E. There's very little residual oil mm-hmm. in it. And if you put just a few drops in the navel area, you may be getting the, you know, even better effects with lower dosage and without getting the the GI irritation, the gastrointestinal tract. So I would I would recommend people try it out. Um, and it also seems that you don't have to use every day for some reason. Maybe because the effects are more potent or like the absorption is better. Uh, people are saying like they they can use Progest E once every two or three days, like not every day. Um, so your mileage may vary, but I thought it was a pretty interesting study. And so far, the people that have tried it are, you know, they're giving it raving reviews in terms of effectiveness. Yeah, yeah. and the repeat email exchange, there, there were a few people that asked him to further clarify the topical application. And I think he said damaged skin uh, absorbs way more than intact skin. Yeah. And so that was, yeah. again, I, I, <laughs> I've been doing the topical administration for years now, and I f- still feel like it's very experimental. <laughs> and so it's, it, yeah. I think it's difficult to get the, the right dose dialed in. But um, another, another uh, tip that I'll give you, not that I'm advocating it, <laughs> um, several rem- animal studies show that if you drink alcohol, mm-hmm. actually the, the, the permeability, which is, makes sense because that's what alcohol does, it increases the permeability of cells, but the permeability of the skin increases too. Mm-hmm. So by getting the rats drunk, <laughs> they managed, they applied basically, again, I think it was uh, like a uh, dexamethasone, which is a synthetic cortisol type steroid. Mm-hmm. And I think also estrogen and testosterone, they found out that while the rats are drunk and for the next 48 mm-hmm. hours after drinking heavily, the, they're basically, they were able to get two to three times more through their skin by using the exact same product as before than when the rats are not drinking. So if you feel like, you know, you, you really need that extra, extra <laughs> absorption kick, you know, just have a few drinks and you don't have to get wasted. But apparently, because while the, the levels of alcohol in the blood is high, that's when the skin permeability mm. is, is, most, is mostly increased. The skin barrier is mostly compromised. So, so having just a few drinks and then, in, you know, in the next hour or two, if you apply you should be able to replicate the study. <laughs> Perfect. Good to know. <laughs> what, uh, what was the next article you wanted to get to? Uh, let's see. The uh, um, 
Let me just go to our first page. We got uh, oh the uh, doxycycline akin to meldonium mildronate. So many of of our, of our listeners already know that doxycycline has some extensive track record, at least in animal studies, for treating for treating cancer. Ray has spoken about it. Actually, he's spoken about all of tetracyclines. I think he prefers the minocycline the most. Um, but there are studies about all the tetracycline, the entire tetracycline family. He's spoken about it. He's explained that they, you know, they work like quinones, you know, similar to vitamin K, similar to uh, emodin, similar to medallin blue, et cetera, et cetera. But there appears to be something specific to the tetracyclines that is not related to their effect as quinones. And that something is that doxycycline inhibits the expression of the gene that encodes the protein responsible for fatty acid oxidation, for enabling fatty acid oxidation. So the doxycycline works at the genetic level. And then, so it's a step lower, actually more fundamental than meldonium. And then meldonium actually just inhibits the enzyme that this gene produces, right? And that enzyme synthesizes the amino acid L-carnitine. So inhibiting the enzyme synthesizing the amino acid L-carnitine prevents the oxidation of long chain fatty acids in the mitochondria, and that is what's therapeutic because it, due to the Rendell cycle, you know, it restores the oxidation of glucose, and it's it's therapeutic in many conditions. And now they're finding out it's therapeutic in cancer as well. Mm-hmm. But for a while, medicine was scratching its head, saying, "Why would doxycycline work? Right? It just makes no sense. Maybe the maybe because it lowers endotoxin. That's certainly uh, you know a, 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 a one of the part of the mechanism of action, right? Maybe because it's anti-inflammatory. That's certainly part of the equation, right? But there was something else missing, and it was a pretty big part. And now it turns out that doxycycline inhibits the oxidation of fatty acids at a, on a very fundamental level, and in concentrations that are easily achievable, even with subclinical dosages. So if you go to a doctor and the doctor thinks you need doxycycline, in all likelihood you're going to get like 100 to 200 milligrams daily dosages for treating a bacterial infection. And just looking at the effectiveness for inhibiting that the expression of that gene. It looks like doxycycline may be able to do that at dosages equivalent to about 50 milligrams daily. And I remember this old interview that Pete gave when he said so, uh, a lady asked him, like, what, sh- what can she do for, uh, for breast cancer? And, she, and he said, lower dose doxycycline. Um, he, he thought it would work really well. And, and she asked why, like, is it because of the endotoxin? He said, no, at 50 milligrams daily, it's probably not going to affect endotoxin much, but it should take care of estrogen and the excessive metabolism of fat mm-hmm. so that man <laughs> knew <laughs> somehow about the effects of doxycycline long before this because i i actually try to find other studies that's the only one that talks about this mm-hmm. effect so ray must have either done studies on his own or taken doxycycline and experienced the effects um and he knew that doxycycline inhibits fatty acid oxidation long before this i mean i think that the interview was given in 2011 mm-hmm. so it's like nine years Nine years ago, he already knew about it, and who knows how long before, even before like, he was, well, he already knew about. It. Well, oh, some people have talked about taking minocycline or doxycycline and feeling like super tired. I'm sure that could be from uh, many different reasons, but didn't uh, maybe we talked about it? But some people hypothesize maybe that's the inhibition of the the using the free fatty acids as fuel and kind of reverting back to your hampered glucose metabolism, and that that might cause some kind of fatigue in the the switch between those. 
and also like uh, I, I think people need to be careful to distinguish between fatigue and drowsiness, mm-hmm. like the, the the tendency to sleep. Everything that blocks estrogen um, unleashes, removes the brakes on the GABA mm-hmm. system. And and that's I don't know if I remember that study came out about three years ago. It's all, it's on the forum that aromatase inhibitors can actually cure even intractable seizures. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they didn't know what the reason is, but one way or another, it's estrogen that's really the the pathology here. So if you're like anything, uh, usually if you look at the drugs that are used for treating seizures, they're heavily sedating. Almost all of them are GABA mm-hmm. agonists, like valproic acid. Um, you know the you know longer uh, higher dosages of the diazepam of benzodiazepine drugs. All of these are, are are you know clinically used for for treating seizures, and all of them happen to be sedating. So if you take something that's anti-estrogenic, chances are it's going to relax you. And in many cases, if the stress hormones go down, uh, you're gonna f- you're gonna feel sleepy. Um, and I think Ray also talked about that. You know, if you if you wake up and you're really hyper and agitated, and then you have breakfast and your temperatures mm-hmm. drop and you start feeling drowsy, mm-hmm. that's because the stress hormones are lowered. Well, estrogen is one of the primary stress hormones, and when you lower it with the you know the tetracycline family, um, I wouldn't be surprised if you if you get sleepy. That's not the same as being exhausted. Good stuff. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, what was the next one? <laughs> um, I, I'm tracking like the Twitter provides this like analytics function to see which uh, which tweets are the most popular. Um, and actually, the endotoxin can trigger social withdrawal slash isolation. That is the top tweet of the so, month. <laughs> somet- sometimes the tweets you don't expect are the most popular. Like I've yeah. Sometimes you go yeah. to the analytics. Um, I'm guessing because social withdrawal and isolation are so prevalent right mm-hmm. now, people are, it's really, it's really ringing a bell for many people. And they're saying, I mean, they're feeling that something isn't right with them. They just can't put their finger mm-hmm. on it. And it may very well be endotoxin. So it's a study that basically showed that even with very low dosages that most people probably have circulating in their bloodstream anyways, because no matter how well your gut barrier is functioning, you will absorb some endotoxin from your colon if you're, if you have a, you know, um, even if you don't have bacterial overgrowth, just eating the regular commercial food with resistant starch mm-hmm. and all the healthy things that your doctor is telling you to eat, you will have at least that amount of endotoxin, if not more. And the, the studies show that that amount is sufficient if administered chronically to basically uh, trigger the sickness syndrome, which in animals leads to refusing to socialize, refusing to mate. <laughs> Big problem mm-hmm. there, right? Um, and in heavier, like more severe cases, refusing to eat. But overall, animals stop being playful. And playfulness, as much as doctors detest it and think it's an, an annoying feature of being human, it's actually one of the greatest symptoms of health. Um, you know, just just how healthy you are. You don't have to. Be, you don't have to be a child to be playful. So lack of playfulness, even in adults, is a very reliable symptom of poor health. So they, you know, just a very low dosage of endotoxin for a few days was enough to cause the sickness syndrome where the animal refused to play with his friends or, you know, running the wheel if it's a hamster or rat, um, started acting anxiously. They have this uh, test called the marble bearing uh, test. So they give the animal like a shiny object, like a little marble. And if the animal is anxious, it immediately buries it in its cage. Like it doesn't, I guess it's it's afraid of like the shininess or something. Um, but basically like the animal started acting very anxious and, and avoided other, avoided everybody, really. They just wanted to be left alone. Um, refused their favorite foods, et cetera, et cetera. So um, if you start feeling like you hate the world and you don't want to be part of it anymore, um, 
you may have a digestion problem. It's really, you know, <laughs> could be that simple sometimes. I, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I, we did trade the email. Um, I forwarded this to you about coronavirus, oh, yeah. but you pointed out something. So I, I said the coronavirus phenomena uh, is uh, as an advanced form of torture, coercion and mind control. And this is from a, like a QAnon person, and I don't. I think that's like an Israeli psyop. <laughs> but uh, and I think this was floated on Infowars too, which I don't think. I think is prob- probably also Israeli psyop. But like, um, there are some things that you pointed out about just the general conditions of working people uh, towards the variants, like the monotonous food, barren environment. Yep. Uh, obviously, yep. the restricted movement is more of the Corona stuff, but ah, um. uh, not really. Actually, Google and the fan the fan companies they have an extremely elaborate system for controlling movement of employees within the mm-hmm. offices. They claim it's to prevent stealing intellectual property. It's basically the intelligence agencies have this thing called compartmentalization. Mm-hmm. Um, they call it SCI, secure compartmentalized information. And actually, if you work for an intelligence agency. You're heavily restricted in your movements, um, but it it seems like well, it doesn't seem since the since the private companies are heavily borrowing from the arsenal of the intelligence agencies and and the military in general. Um, when I was still gainfully employed as a hired gun, uh, as a you know as a peon, um, we actually had behavioral consultants come mm-hmm. in, and since I was being groomed to be a manager, I saw some of these. They actually had techniques mm-hmm. on how to. How do we implement many of these things? The barren environment was thought to basically trigger, um, you know, increased productivity because it will be less distracting. Um, um, and actually, they had they quite openly said that, gen- uh, like creating, generating a certain amount, a certain amount of anxiety in the employees is actually productive because it leads to increased competition. Mm-hmm. And I was able to corroborate that with older studies done in the sixties and seventies at Harvard by the person who tortured the Unabomber as a young mm-hmm. boy and very likely turned him into the, into the Unabomber that we mm-hmm. know. But apparently that's well known. It's been researched for decades, and uh, by now it's it's these are fairly standard techniques in, um, in upper management's um, arsenal, basically how to keep people divided, competitive, um, angry, afraid, but without being able to articulate what they're afraid of. All of these things. Uh, so yeah. So the full list of uh, that column you sent me, it does seem like a more applicable to you know uh, things like uh, something like a pandemic. But certain certain you know a subset of that is very much in very wide use um, in 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 in, um, in large corporations. And it's not just in the United States. I have friends who work in Europe, and some of the corporations there are even worse. Uh, I mean, basically there there's some laws there that uh, that, that that allow uh, corporations to uh, uh, to to clamp down on freedom of movement, freedom of expression, many other things. So um, for all for all the heat that America catches is a bad place to be. Um, there are some places in Europe where, when it comes to personal freedoms, you can have it much worse. Uh, but it just caught my eye. I mean, just the, the, those things that I sent you back caught my eye because I've seen them in in uh, as an actual list in a behavioral consultant from Boston Consulting mm-hmm. Group of all mm-hmm. places. The, the creme de la creme of the management consulting companies, or maybe McKinsey, mm-hmm. but the, the guy who came and, and you know, uh, advised my former company, uh, my former employee was from the Boston Consulting Group. And he had this list, and I just immediately, I immediately remember it. Uh, f- those things that I sent you back were uh, non-exhausted. There were more things that, which I don't remember now, 
but those things were were on his list. I like the enforcing trivial demands. <laughs> that was like <laughs> the funniest. <laughs> but yeah, the it, it's band.video. And again, I know that's an Infowars thing, but the, the uh, something Reese, the guy does go through. I thought it was compelling. Um, but anyways, back uh, on subject before people yell at us. It just if nothing else, it's quite obvious that because it, when people see these things, they don't have to they don't have to associate or like or um you know say oh my god all these things are you know happening in my life but just a few of these i think many people have experienced right the barren environment like who working in a cubicle in a massive corporation has not <laughs> experienced that i mean there's an entire movie made about this office mm-hmm. space i don't know if, if you've mm-hmm. seen it um that's that's what they what the whole discussion was all about the whole premise of the movie was the soul sucking ability of of modern corporations and, you know, um, I've actually spoken to a psychologist about it. And, you know, of course, they're all part of the academia. So like, no, no, it's not on purpose. You're a conspiracy theorist. Well, apparently a good portion of it is very much on purpose. You know, you'll think like who would design these soulless looking, soul sucking buildings and place people in cubicles to literally be like cattle. That cannot be just you, you have to be either really, really, really dumb or it has to be on purpose. And. We've been told, you know, it's maybe stupidity or like cost cutting or whatnot. And I'm sure there's some of that too. But now we're finding out that many of these things are, are quite deliberate. Good stuff. Thank you, Georgie. Um, okay, next. Are, what What's the time here? Okay, we're at 40 minutes. Um, I think estrogen directly causes polycystic ovary syndrome. I think that's a pretty controversial one. That's the second most popular tweet of the month. Okay, go for it. Um. So, as you, as the listeners uh, probably know, um, the the PCOS disease, if you, it's currently considered an androgen-driven disease. Um, it's a constellation of symptoms: cystic ovaries, um, high blood pressure, high blood sugar, like almost like a pre-diabetic pre-diabetes condition, right? Um, infertility, acne, all kinds of like. There's a constellation of symptoms, and because of the acne, maybe. Um, you know, that most of the studies that actually virtually all of the studies that are out there, they'll say, they'll start with the, with the, the sentence that reads like, um, this, the constellation of symptoms such as obesity, acne, fertility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's, it's very much likely to be caused by excessive androgens and they've measured some of the, the androgen levels of some of these women. Um, and if in some cases, not all of them, they found that, the levels of DHEA-S, DHEA, sulfate is elevated, right? But we already know that this is an adrenal hormone and we already know that estrogen irritates the adrenals and triggers, while the adrenals are still healthy, triggers an adrenal hyperactivity at the expense of the gonads. Uh, And people have asked Ray multiple times, he kept saying it's the estrogen that's causing it. Um, That's why anti-estrogenic drugs are beneficial, et cetera, et cetera. But I still keep getting emails saying, how can Ray say that and how can you continue to say that given that everything... All the evidence points to androgens, right? Um, and there's nothing about estrogen. So I thought, um, you know, I was I was uh, researching, I was trying to find out if pregnenolone had had direct anti-estrogenic effects. So I stumbled upon a study um, by a group from Iran. Ironically, I don't know if you remember in the last podcast, Ray said Iran is one of the countries doing something yeah, right. I got right? email about that. So I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> And since, as you as you well know, I don't believe in coincidences. Mm-hmm. I believe I believe in synchronicities. I thought, well, let me read that study. Lo and behold, they they say it rather openly, administering estrogen valerate, valeriate, 
directly causes polycystic ovary syndrome over the course of just a few days, actually just two weeks. And I, I looked at estrogen valeriate, and it's actually the most widely used estrogen ester in contraceptive pills. So if I was a smart man, and I'm not, I would think <laughs> that the current epidemic of PCOS may have something to do with the excessive use of estrogen-containing birth control pills, right? I mean, what else? It just If estrogen is involved, oh, by the way, I, I also try to find corroborative studies, and there are at least 10 out there. And then the, by different authors, they haven't cited each other. So again, independent confirmation. Um, uh, by, and people were quite open. They said estrogen has a number of different uh, uh, detrimental metabolic effects, but at least two of them mentioned the hyper hyperadrenalism, which estrogen is known to mm -hmm. cause. And, um, and, and I thought to myself, wow, I mean, this is actually, this makes perfect sense. We've always known actually that puberty, which is a condition associated with hype, with elevated adrenal activity, it starts by a surge of estrogen in both males and females. So if we knew that estrogen causes this, then why why is it such a controversy to say that another hyperadrenal condition in adulthood may also have something to do with estrogen? Where and as as has has almost become a custom at this point, uh, it turns out that the dominant theory or the dominant message that we're hearing is really not based on anything except somebody, some famous person's assumption 30, 40 years ago. And very often that person didn't even believe that that, that strongly in their own uh, you know, hypothesis, but it was convenient, it was profitable. I mean, for a number of different reasons, that message stuck. And then everybody started quoting that original study and quoting each other, referencing each other's studies. And at some point you have this basically collective delusion. But if you start peeling the layers of the onion eventually get nothing, just like an onion. You don't, you can't even get to the core. There is no core. But quite a few other independent groups are saying, well, there may be different types of PCOS, but we know for sure that the standard one with all of the constellation of symptoms that we know as PCOS can very reliably and easily be produced by really not that high dosages of estrogen value rate, which most women that are taking birth control pills take doses that are two to three times higher on a daily basis, often for decades. So there is one possible cause, or you know, one cause that will probably explain a double-digit percentage of the current epidemic of PCOS that we're seeing everywhere, like worldwide. <laughs> Yeah, great stuff. And and a few articles have talked about the like pr so-called premature male pattern baldness and like earlier younger men being the an the analog is that the right word to PCOS. And so it's like a similar. It, well, it's actually like the exact same thing happening. And both are seemingly from the lower thyroid function, like the the estrogen suppresses the thyroid function, but it also activates the adrenals. And then in a long time ago, in an email uh, that I was trading with Ray, he was also. Uh, he specifically said that nitric oxide and then the prostaglandins were two other things that were antagonizing the adrenals like directly, and they didn't have to go through the whole hypothalamus pituitary uh, system. So I, I guess that it, it doesn't endotoxin do that too. Like they all directly uh, antagonize the yeah. adrenals. But PUFA specifically, now you're reminding me, there's a study which uh, I, I caught a, a, a lot of flack over that um, study on the forum, which shows that a PUFA and its metabolites even without going through the COX and LOX mm -hmm. enzymes, just the other, because there are multiple pathways through which PUFA can get metabolized. PUFA and its metabolized, even the non-inflammatory ones, if there is such mm -hmm. a thing, 
at least not the ones that the medicine calls it calls inflammatory, not prostaglandins, not leukotrienes, are capable of, of activating the HPA axis independently of CRH and ACTH. Mm. So even if you have your pituitary removed <laughs> and <laughs> somehow your hypothalamus removed, if you're ingesting a sufficient amount of PUFA, your adrenals can still get directly activated. Um, and, and to medicine, it's a, it's a, it's a mystery. How can he possibly do that? What, what is it that, that, you know, PUFA does apparently it acts because it's not a receptor that's involved. Mm. The adrenals don't have the, the, they, I think that that study tested whether PUFA and its metabolites can activate the ACTH receptor in the adrenals. And it was not basically independently. So apparently the adrenals are capable of producing cortisol, um, and pumping out DHEA while they're still still healthy, based on a variety of signals from the environment, and it doesn't have to be something that you directly perceive. So it's just you know just eating PUFA, even if you're perfectly blissful and nobody's threatening to I don't know forcefully vaccinate you, mm-hmm. um, you know you can still get a pretty potent stress response uh, activation just just by by eating all the PUFA. So the adrenals are. Perfectly capable, as uh, I guess they're an autonomous system of sorts, of of uh, self-activating, or I mean, getting activated by signals that are not of, of endogenous origin. So you can get, you know, the stress the stress message can come in various forms, Puffer being one of them. Good point. Well said. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. It's uh, we're about forty five minutes in, uh, guys. Thank you for hanging out in the chat. I know it's uh, late and late for Georgie. Um, what did want to do two or three more articles and then we'll, okay. yeah, let's do the, uh, progesterone, not a sex hormone, but a systemic health hormone. Great. I thought it was a great one. And this is actually, I'm surprised I haven't stumbled upon this earlier. This, this was a, uh, an article in the New York post about a study at Cornell university, which is also in uh, New York, not New York city, but, um, New York state. Uh, it was from 2001. Um, but if you read that study, or at least the popular press article, it just reads like something Ray would like, I mean, not that he would say that he had said, he has been saying for decades that that person, the lead author of the study almost sounded almost angry. He's like, I don't know who started this nonsense about like progesterone and estrogen being the sex hormones. Yeah, they certainly have that role, but guess what? Both men and women produce estrogen. Both men and women produce progesterone. Mm. And in that specific study, they found out that progesterone is actually one of the main endogenous controllers of blood pressure and of the stress system and of and of calcium overload in the cell. Um, and progesterone was able to oppose all of these things. It was able to uh, oppose the elevation of blood pressure by adrenaline. It was able to oppose the overaccumulation of calcium um, in cells. Um, and it was able to, um, what was the other thing? Oh, yeah. It was able to, to um, downregulate the stress response in the brain, probably by antagonizing CRH, which we know pregnenolone and progesterone can do. Um, and, uh, and, and then not to be outdone, basically, like the second portion of the article was that same professor saying, um, yeah, progesterone, uh, kind of. it's kind of unfortunate. Progesterone has been getting a lot of bad rap, but it's actually it's the synthetic progest- progestins we need to be careful about. They have absolutely nothing <laughs> to do with bioidentical progesterone. Almost all of them are derivatives of either testosterone or one of its or one of its synthetic derivatives. So stop talking about progesterone being the same as the synthetic progesterone. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I don't know. I, I know quite a few doctors, both through classmates and I used to work at NIH 
as an IT consultant, but my the people that I work there on a daily basis uh, with, they're all mm-hmm. doctors. So and I've discussed with them because at the time I was already kind of involved in in the biochemical um, uh, community. So I kept we we discussed like the you know steroids and whatnot and the different drugs and not a single one of them like basically to them the synthetic progestins were just like progesterone but better. Like there was nothing progesterone had to offer. It was this obsolete endogenous steroid. You know the you know they they didn't want to deal with it and it's like. It's like you could not convince any of them that progesterone had anything to offer except potentially mess up your hormonal mm-hmm. balance. Of course, the word mm-hmm. balance, right? Why? Well, because it can get converted to cortisol, can get converted to aldosterone, all these things. Yeah, but it also happens to be an antagonist of both. So it's like, and when you inject it, we give it when administer it to people and animals, they don't become hypercortisolemic. They don't develop Cushing syndrome. But if you give them synthetic progestins, they mm-hmm. do develop Cushing syndrome. So anyways, long story short, I mean, I thought that, you know, I'm like, wow, I guess Cornell is really, uh, it's like a beacon of civilization when it comes to, uh, you know, endocrine science. I've never heard of anybody else speak so highly of progesterone, dispel, try to dispel the myth that it's a sex hormone and nothing more. And more importantly, it's a female sex hormone. Again, like this professor kind of basically said, oh, this is crap. I don't know who started it, but it needs to end. We need to reevaluate progesterone. Because it has systemic beneficial effects on health and very importantly on heart, brain, uh, digestion, and reproductive function. I thought, well, what else is left? I mean, it's like you just said that progesterone basically affects beneficially the, the four major systems that make us what we are. So that's that's the message that I got from the study. And that's, how, that's why I titled, titled the blog post that way. Uh, even though he didn't say it's a systemic health hormone, he said it affects systemic in a beneficial way. The digestion, uh, brain, heart, and 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 reproduction. Well, I mean, if you read Ray's articles, that's pretty much, um, you know, it, these four things, one or more, are are you know addressed in almost every single one of his articles. Yeah, progesterone affects the parts of the body besides the reproductive system, such as the heart, the brain, and blood vessels. <laughs> I- yeah, and if you actually read the actual study, he actually expands on that. Says reproduction, and he says in a beneficial way. That's mm-hmm. the key part. And I thought maybe New York Post thought they're gonna be they're gonna be accused of pushing progesterone or like, you know, somebody gonna send like a you know I don't know a hit squad or something to why are you promoting progesterone when we have all these billions invested in the synthetic progestins? But um, I looked up that that professor. He's no longer at Cornell, uh, and it looks like. Looks like his his lab that he was heading there is has been shut down. So unfortunate, but you know, gives me hope that not every endocrinologist uh, in this world has completely lost their mind. Good stuff. I c- could question you more about this, but I'll be sensitive of uh, time. Um, wh- I think the next one: many inert additives in drugs and food are actually active mm-hmm, and toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ray had an entire newsletter about mm-hmm, this, right? Mm-hmm. Was it about the nanoparticles? Um, yeah, yeah, like and how dangerous they can, can have transgenerational effects. Yeah, so he touched upon a few of them, but now, and the good thing is basically this, um, um, the the group that published the study. Uh, now they have a they have a database where we can actually go and type like a, 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 the name of an excipient. Could be silicon dioxide. Could be titanium dioxide. Could be talc could be like, um, what else, one of the gums or like hypromelose, cellulose, these things. And you'll, you'll come back with whether they've, because they tested over 7,000 different compounds and they said that the majority of them were showed at least one type of activity 
and I think about 38 were especially concerning in terms of, um, you know, from what I remember, Timeros out. Well, that's not a surprise because it's type of mercury, mm-hmm. right? But also, I think they mentioned, um, I think they mentioned titanium dioxide and, and talc. Both of them were actually antagonists of the dopamine system. So, so they said, you know, basically the study says the vast majority of drugs that we're taking that we have in the system, even over the counter ones, and even dietary supplements contain one or more of these buffer slash inert excipients that have been told are completely inert and they have no effect on health whatsoever. But that's not what our research says. They're actually quite active and in the vast majority of cases, detrimentally so. Um, I don't, I didn't see a single compound that they said, oh my God. This is awesome. This inert thing can actually cure cardiovascular <laughs> disease or like, I don't know, lower your blood pressure. No, actually, every single one of them that they discovered to have an effect was actually pretty bad. Um, so uh, next time you're, you know, make sure you check the label. If your doctor prescribes a drug, make sure you ask for the full ingredients. Um, more often than not, they're not listed. The inactive ingredients are not listed, especially if you're getting your drugs from like a commercial pharmacy like CVS or Rite Aid, if you're in the United States, they just give you these, you know, the, the proverbial orange uh, containers with like a twist on cap, mm-hmm. right? And it's, it has your name, your prescription number, the doctor who prescribed it, the name of the drug, and maybe how often you take it. But I've not seen any information on inactive ingredients. Sometimes they include like an additional leaflet. Um, and and I, 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 most of the times, they actually, they're not giving it to you because it's, a, it's like an additional thing. And most people will just grab the container and, you know, walk away because that's what they want the drug, right? Um, but make sure you read the label because even things such as talc and, you know, titanium dioxide are far from 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 benign. Um, we, I, I don't know if you've discussed be, before the uh, the several class action lawsuits about talc. Maybe. Uh, that is causing endometrial mm-hmm. cancer. So Johnson & Johnson is currently, uh, I think they already lost the lawsuit. So they basically now they owe 700 and I don't know how many million dollars to people who develop endometrial cancer, women mostly, uh, well, I shouldn't say mostly, but women who develop endometrial cancer by using these fe- feminine products that contain talc. Um, and in some cases, they weren't even using it directly. They were inhaling it because it's also in, in baby powder, like talc powder. And, you know, these women powdering their babies' behinds, uh, you know, sometimes this, this, you know, cloud, you know, would like, would form and they would inhale it. And I'm thinking... Well, why just the mothers? What about the babies? You know, they're also inhaling it. But unfortunately, the, the lawsuit did not look into that. So there may be a subsequent lawsuit that's about all the babies that were, that, you know, that were uh, given cancer, childhood cancer probably, or adult cancer because of the uh, of the talk that was being used. So very few things that are in commercial use right now are, are, are beneficial for you. Uh, I think it's fair to say none of them. But even less so are... are, are inert so almost nothing is inert i think ray said in one of his articles he used to annoy his students when he had when he had students by asking them to consider the potential hormonal effect of um almost everything that the body gets in contact with and forms a reaction mm-hmm. to uh, because he thought that anything that causes a reaction it has is hormonal in nature by hormone meaning has a signaling function so if your body reacts to something then by definition that ingredient is not inert right and I don't know who came up now when you think about it. It's, it's, it sounds so dumb. I mean, clearly, if you're ingesting something or inhaling it or applying it to yourself and you're causing any kind of a reaction, at the very least, we can say there, there are no inert excipients. But, you know, the powers that be control culture by defining, by creating definitions. 
And uh, the idea, the notion of inert of an inert substance in chemistry is very heavily embedded. I work with chemists in on a daily basis. Some of them are, you know, heavily under the spell of 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 that of that uh, of, of of all these notions. To them, you know, you can um, you can buy like silicon dioxide and you know create a drug where this is like the buffering compound, and to them it's perfectly safe. But when you start talking about, well, would you eat powder glass? Then they start thinking twice. But before that, to them, it says inert. The database, the chemical database says inert, so it is inert. Uh, apparently nothing is, or very few things are when it comes to food and drugs. Great. Want to move on to questions? Oh, yeah. yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, guys. I know it's late. Thank you for hanging out in the chat. Thank you, Georgie, for, for joining me. You know, um, Give us a subscribe at the BitChute channel. It's bitchute.com slash Danny Roddy. Uh, we have 42 subscribers over there. Uh, this, this live stream is now in podcast format on anchor.fm, uh, Generative Energy Streams, also on Spotify. And so that has been a request that I have been... <laughs> I don't know. I have zero idea why I, I didn't act on it, but now it finally clicked for me, and so I did. Uh, follow me at uh, twitter.com slash Rowdy. Follow Georgie. Or this is wrong. This should be Georgie's. Um, uh, Georgie, twitter.com slash hate it. My telegram, t.me slash Rowdy. My Instagram, the Danny Rowdy weblog. Idealabsdc.com. Georgie Dinkov's uh, boutique supplements that he makes out of Washington, D.C. And then I do coaching on dannyrowdy.com slash resources. Jory, anything else before we dive into questions? I mean, I don't have anything else. Just like Ray, when you ask him, like, any parting <laughs> words, he says, no. <laughs> he never, yeah, he never says anything. Okay, uh, let me open this up real fast. Um, so, guys, if you want to do Super Chats, uh, that would be... This is the time. And these Super Chats are supporting this show. You know, when we have Ray on, I always don't donate those to him. But these these make this show possible. So we sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, guys. OK, uh, Michael, for hundred dollars. Wow, that's extremely generous. Thank you so much. He says, what would be an effective treatment for a mild cough caused by exposure to mold? Thank you, Danny and George. Uh, well, I mean, if it's if it's just the allergic reaction, I think like a over the counter antihistamine would work rather well. Um, I've had some very good experience with gelatin. The amino acids, glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline are actually, they have a mast cell stabilizing effect. The amino acid L-theanine in tea is also known to have that effect. Um, but in general, if it's just the allergic reaction, um, you know, I would, uh, you know, I would just try to, you know, take an antihistamine like Benadryl or maybe some cyproheptadine, or if you want to try the dietary approaches first. Um, aspirin also seems to work rather well as an anti-allergic drug, so which makes me suspect that a good portion of that allergic reaction is related to prostaglandins. Um, and um, ironically, some of the potent asthma and allergy drugs that are being developed right now are leukotrien antagonists. In other words, that's one of the pathways through which the PUFO passes through and become, forms the inflammatory mediators. The prostaglandins are going through the COX enzyme and the leukotrienes through the LOX enzyme. And officially, aspirin apparently uh, is claimed to only be a COX inhibitor, but there are older studies that show it also inhibits LOX, and it can decrease the release of histamine from mast cells. So I think aspirin also has a direct anti-allergic effect, maybe not as potent as, as Benadryl, excuse me, but uh, it's probably safer and it's widely available. 
So um, I don't I would I, I don't think it would hurt to try a little bit of gelatin and aspirin. By the way, they synergize and the gelatin protects from the GI irritation, any possible GI irritation from aspirin. But even if you like if you have an irritation, just dissolving the aspirin in in, in liquid tends to eliminate that. It's basically equivalent to uh, drinking lemon juice or something. It's not that strong of an acid, so um, shouldn't be an issue. Great stuff. Thank you, Georgie. And thank you, Michael. Sincerely appreciate it. Our buddy Drew F for $5. Hey, Drew, he says, exp- uh, please explain how the androgen receptor acts differently than um, uh, GR, G- uh, something. The glucocorticoid receptor? Uh, okay, yeah, it must yeah. be that. Or serotonin receptors in terms of resensitization, upregulation, slash downregulation. Well, the androgen receptor, first of all, all of the steroid receptors, they have a heavy overlap. Their amino acid sequences are about 80% similar. And in the in the in the case of the glucocorticoid and the progesterone receptor, the, the so-called homology or the overlap is over 90%. So it's not a coincidence that progesterone is a potent glucocorticoid receptor antagonist simply because th- those two receptors are, are, are so similar. Um, and uh, basically, the uh, in terms of anabolism, the way the glucocorticoid receptor works is simply blocks the catabolic effects of of cortisol. So, we, so when you're taking an anabolic androgenic steroid, uh, about eighty percent of the effect is simply blocking the catabolic effects of cortisol. But m- almost all of the anabolic steroids are also androgenic, and so far, there uh, that's actually the holy grail uh, in steroid chemistry. Can you develop a steroid that is purely anabolic without any androgenic effect? And so far, the answer seems to be no. And one of a few possible reasons are that activation of the androgen receptor improves glucose metabolism and decreases the oxidation of fat, and which is crucial for proper muscular health and for metabolic health in general. In addition, activating the androgen receptor inhibits the expression of the protein myostatin, and myostatin inhibitors are known to be extremely anabolic. Um, some people may have seen, if you type myostatin inhibitor um, cow in Google and go to images, you'll see these ridiculously muscularly looking bulls and cows that have been treated with a myostatin inhibitor, um, and it's a known effect. So, the you know, um, many, many, many pharma companies are in hot pursuit of myostatin inhibitors, but it looks like simply using a strong androgen agonist has that effect indirectly. Um, And also, activating the androgen receptor seems to increase protein synthesis, which is quite obviously required uh, for proper anabolic effect, and in general for tissue restoration. The most potent androgenic steroids are not very anabolic because, as it turns out, the muscle expresses a lot more of the glucocorticoid receptor than the androgen receptor, so you, you would expect more potent glucocorticoid antagonists to be more anabolic in muscle. However, most internal organs express a lot more of the androgen receptor than the glucocorticoid one, and the heavily androgenic steroids are actually quite anabolic for organs. So if you have a spleen atrophy or you have a liver atrophy, if you have a gastrointestinal atrophy from like inflammatory bowel disease, something like that, it looks like androgen agonists could be very, very therapeutic and that has been confirmed in multiple studies already, animal ones, uh, with the steroid dihydrotestosterone, one of my favorites, DHT. If you go to, if you just go to Google and type DHT IBD, which stands for inflammatory bowel disease, and you'll get a number of different studies showing that uh, you can actually stop it in its tracks, um, and you can reverse 
many of the fibrotic and atrophic effects of prolonged inflammatory bowel disease. So the, the androgen receptor and the glucocorticoid receptor seem to be heavily dependent. I mean, they're, they're synergistic, but also activating the androgen receptor seems to, to suppress the transcription effects of estrogen agonists. So by activating the androgen receptor, you're even though you're not directly uh, messing with the estrogen receptors, you're blocking the effects of estrogen downstream. In other words, you know, if estrogen is responsible for the production of certain proteins or, you know, activating certain metabolic pathways, you know, there are two ways to stop that. Either you block the estrogen receptor that the estrogen is activating, or you, conversely, you activate the androgen receptor. So in a, in a functional sense, the androgen receptor and the estrogen receptor are, are, are antagonists. They're functional antagonists. Activating one deactivates the other and vice versa. It's not a, so I guess that's it should be readily visible because estrogen agonists happen to be hem, heavily feminizing in males. Um, and it's always been a mystery why, but one explanation is because they oppose the downstream effect of the androgens, uh, which are acting through the androgen receptor. Um, as far as the serotonin, the dopamine, um, the receptor sensitization is usually done by administering an antagonist on a specific receptor, but it can also be done by lowering the levels of the endogenous uh, chemical activating them. So, for example, if you want to if you want to increase the sensitivity of the serotonin receptors, you can take something like cyproheptanin or any other uh, non-specific serotonin antagonist, or you can simply decrease the amount of serotonin being synthesized and the body will respond by increasing the density of the serotonin receptors. So when you basically, when you stop that process inhibiting serotonin synthesis for the first day or two, you may have like a, you know, symptom of serotonin excess because now the breaks on serotonin have been removed and now you're much more sensitive to its effects. However, within, within 24 to 48 hours, the body responds to by down-regulating its own production of serotonin because it says, oh my God, I have too much or I'm, I'm too, way too sensitive. So either I have too many receptors or too much serotonin, but because changing the expression of the receptors is much more energetically expensive, the way the body compensates for it is simply by decreasing by itself, decreasing the synthesis of serotonin. Um, it's The full process is not really known, but as far as the serotonin receptor sensitization, that that's a pretty common one. Um, and the drug fenclonine, also known as, the, its chemical name is parachlorophenylalanine, which is uh, an inhibitor, a non-selective inhibitor of tryptophan hydroxylase, both of the isoenzymes, type 1 and type 2, is known to increase the, the, the density of the serotonin receptors. Um, and that's why after it's been used for a while, you shouldn't stop it uh, cold turkey. You should taper it off to prevent that day or two of sort of like, uh, you're not going to get serotonin syndrome, but you may feel jittery and you may feel angry for no reason. Uh, you may feel agitated. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's that's how usually you can increase the sensitivity. Administer an antagonist or decrease the levels of the endogenous substrate, the, the endogenous activator. Great stuff. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Drew. Uh, Matthew Riley, again, so many chronic supporters of the show. Guys, sincerely appreciate it. Michael, Drew, Matthew. Matthew Riley for $10. He says, I'm using Estroban and Energen, and they're incredible. Uh, one effect is consistently foamy urine, which I believe is glucuronidation. Uh, what does constant glucuronidation say about my health? Good thing, question mark? Uh, I would say it's better than not having any glucuronidation. It's the same thing as with um, 
the good, quote-unquote, good cholesterol, HDL. So if you have a chronically high HDL um, without doing anything, without basically drinking alcohol or like having an endotoxin overload, it's not a good sign. It's actually a, a very reliable predictor of all-cause mortality. But it's actually, it's even worse if you drink and your HDL does not rise because the primary purpose of HDL in the body is the transport of endotoxin uh, from the blood to the liver for deactivation. So, so basically, uh, HDL is protective, but only in cases where you actually have high endotoxin. So, so it's better to have high glucuronidation than no glucuronidation at all. Uh, however, if this is uh, depending on when the foamy urine occurs, if it's only in the morning, um, I would say it's, I don't want to say natural, but it's more normal than not. Because, um, you know, throughout the night, especially if you're sleeping uninterrupted for, I don't know, 8 to 10 hours a night, um, in an adult, the glycogen stores get depleted. Not so not so much in children because they're much more efficient than us in, in their metabolism of glucose. Their thyroid hormone works much better. They have less, fuel, you know, lower levels of stress hormones. So children can get through the night without much of an activation of the stress system. That's why they sleep so deeply usually. But adults do not. So by the time you're, it's let's say if you go to bed at like 10 o'clock at night, around 6.30 to 7, your cortisol and adrenaline levels are already pretty high. Um, and uh, uh, in, um, in China, actually, the Kung Fu, the, the monks that practice uh, Kung Fu, they actually have a habit and it's, uh, it's codified in their practicing, like in, their, in, their, um, in the books about the practicing of the martial arts, that actually have to get up in the middle of the night perform some calming exercises and then go uh, eat a little bit and then go back to bed because it's considered good for the health. And they explain in a different way. They say, you know, you, you absorb more chi. I mean, they have their, they have their own different explanation, but Ray spoke about this in one of this, his articles. And he said that practitioners of Tai Chi, which is one of the martial arts, which is practiced mostly for health purposes and for calming the person down, he thought that 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 uh, habit of getting up in the middle of the night or very early in the morning, performing some calming exercises and eating a little bit will serve mostly the purpose of lowering the stress hormones. So uh, so again, if you're getting up in the morning and you, you have a little bit of foaming urine, I don't think that that that's much of a that that's that's uh, that big of a problem. But if it's happening consistently throughout the day, then it suggests that um, that uh, adrenaline is probably too more uh, higher higher than, than, than optimal, and the free fatty acids are elevated. So something like, um, I don't know, maybe increasing the uh, dosage of niacinamide or maybe adding a little bit of aspirin uh, or other things that block or inhibit lipolysis like vitamin E or just eating something sweet. Um, it's probably in order because you don't want your urine to be always foamy. Uh, diabetics actually get consistently foamy urine, um, and uh, the doctors tell them, oh, it's because of proteinuria, you know, you're, 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 you're peeing protein in your urine and that's what's forming the foam. It's not. It's actually the, the fatty acids, you know, being being turned into soap, into these soap-like soap molecules. Uh, and when you when you pee them out, they, they form this foam. So it's mostly a sign of elevated free fatty acids. So that's what I would do. I'll make sure if it's, if it's happening in the morning, if you wake up at night, don't try to force yourself to go back to sleep. Get up and drink something sweet slash salty, uh, right? And then try to go back to sleep. If it's happening throughout the day, uh, suggestion that lipolysis is too high uh, or higher than optimal, and um, I would try aspirin, vitamin E, maybe higher dose, niacinamide, things like that. Great. Let me just yeah, turn go, on yeah. the light again. Uh, it's in the chat, Chris H. 
I read your thing as three uh, three tablets of Sinoplus, so I just read your thing too quickly. Um, there, people are talking about thyroid dosage in the comments here, or the chat rather. And what's going on with the chat? We, we, we were talking. Sabotures? No, 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 no. The chat, chat is always. Uh, last few months has always been really awesome, so I think we're really fortunate. Well, there's a question about thyroid dosage, and so we'll we'll get to this in a second. So, um, uh, yeah, okay, let's get back to these questions. Uh, thank you for that, Matthew. Thank you, Georgie. Elliot Cactus for fourteen ninety nine of Australian dollars. I'm not sure. Um, he says, any tips for reducing iodine in the body? A recent test revealed that my levels were excessively high. Is there anything else I can do now that I've stopped supplementing? Any foods I should avoid? Um, well, of course, avoiding iodized salt would be pretty high on my list. But um, I remember seeing a few older studies showing that eating non-iodized salt actually very quickly lowered whole body iodine stores. And I'm not sure why. Um, but um, And also increasing saturated fat. Uh, in the diet seems to uh, seems to also decrease the the body stores of iodine. Uh, I'm not sure if that has to do anything with the iodine number. Um, you know, if the body somehow like increases the amount of iodine as sort of like a defensive mechanism against the accumulation of PUFA because it does act as an antioxidant and also it can be used to saturate fatty acids. I don't think we can do it endogenously, but I know it can prevent it can uh, limit the peroxidation of PUFA. So, uh, you know, if, if it is some kind of an adaptive reaction, simply increasing the amount of saturated fat in the diet um, may help. But, I, but I've seen studies that show that eating non-iodized salt uh, is pretty effective at lowering um, whole body stores. Um, in some, there are also some studies show, uh, showing that it may be uh, a uh, biomarker of inflammation. So it may be worth checking other biomarkers of inflammation, like, uh, I don't know, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, C-reactive protein, um, you know, you can check your um, prostaglandin levels um, pretty easily. Does a pretty, st pretty pretty standard tests. If any of these comes back uh, comes back elevated, then you know, I I will take that as a indication that that's the reason for the elevated iodine. So, you know, just watching PUFA intake and using anti-inflammatory um, substances like aspirin and vitamin E and progesterone and pregnenolone, um, you know, should should be should be able to correct it. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Um, yeah, and if it had suppressed their thyroid function, just uh, working everything in the opposite direction to try to correct that, I guess. Uh, thank you, Elliot. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Kana uh, Takashi for uh, twelve hundred yen. <laughs> thank you so much, Kana. <laughs> and she gives a amazing emoji with that. Thank you, uh, John, for five dollars. He says, "What is your opinion on the A one versus A two milk issue? Is A one milk protein problematic?" Um, I don't think so. I mean, I, I have a, a few um, a few clients, or oh, I shouldn't call them clients, people who have been emailing me throughout the years, um, and be, they've tried both types of milk on their sales and, the, and their children, and they thought it's the it, you know that specific protein was giving them an allergic reaction, and then in the vast majority of cases, it turned out that it's actually something in the milk product. Um, uh, one of them actually sent a sample to the lab, and if they found out there is a ton. A ton of silicon dioxide um, in an organic in in a product labeled as organic. I can't tell it the brand because it's not a very popular brand. So it was a, a, a something that they bought in their local, I guess their their, their health food stores. It's not like a major national brand. 
Yeah, I, I don't think many people are in danger of getting it, but it was still concerning because it did have the USDA organic sticker, and uh, that person had an access to the lab, also convinced their child's doctor to send some samples for analysis, and they came back with, uh, you know, really high levels of silicon dioxide, and, you know, when they switched to a different brand, still commercial, still organic, they did not have that problem anymore. Um, so, so far, at least my experience is that uh, it's not the protein type that's the issue. There's something else in the in the milk that's causing this. Good stuff. Uh, I just want to point this out. I cut my lip, and so I'm having trouble smiling. But <laughs> normally, I would be smiling a little bit more, but it actually physically hurts. Uh, but somebody just put it. We're a, living uh, in, in serious <laughs> times, Danny. It's not, not no time for laughing. <laughs> nothing. There's nothing to laugh. But, my old teacher used to say. But somebody put an emoji, and I would normally laugh at that, but it's uh, very physically painful. Um, okay, thank you for that, Georgie. Thank you for that, uh, John. Uh, our buddy Kirk, 333 $5, says, Can a crease in the earlobe be reversed, or is the crease permanent, but the health can be reversible? Uh, both can be reversible. And in fact, I know people who had their disappear, both of their creases in the yellow disappear by taking, one of them used higher dosages of progesterone, about 100 milligrams daily uh, for a month. And then the other one went on testosterone replacement therapy, but convinced their doctor to also give them an aromatase inhibitor. Mm -hmm. And a third person reversed theirs with thyroid. So in all of these cases, uh, you know, all the three cases that I know of, there was dramatic improvement in in overall health and just how they how these people look like. They lost their extra weight. Um, they basically like they were fatigued in the past before that, and then they started becoming really active to the point of feeling like they wanted to pick up exercise. Uh, they were sleeping better, so it was quite obvious an improvement in health, systemic health. Uh, but I think the ultimate issue is just a, this is just a sign slash symptom of low thyroid function. Um, and usually restoring metabolism reverses. I don't think there is anything specific. I think that's why it's a, such a good predictor of cardiovascular disease, precisely because it correlates so well with low thyroid function. So doing anything, you know, in the opposite direction, and we know that progesterone, testosterone, and thyroid are prometabolic. Uh, doing anything in the opposite direction usually resolves both the symptom and the underlying pathology for the cardiovascular system. Great stuff. Thank you, Kirk. Thank you, Georgie. Another one for Kirk. He says, um, or no, only one. <laughs> okay, John for $5 says, uh, how to aid 70-year-old parents' longevity? Due to their age, I fear bioenergetic changes to their medicine dietary habits could be too much for them. My Both of my parents are in their 70s, um, and uh, <laughs> believe it or not, they do great on methylene blue and progesterone, both my mom and my dad. Um, my dad uh, had type 2 diabetes diagnosed about 10 years ago, but basically over time, um, he, he did not like metformin. They prescribed metformin. He didn't like it, didn't react well to it. I suspect he actually had mild cases of, of lactic acidosis, which metformin is known to cause. Thankfully, he recognized it. He caught it early. And even though he called the doctor and the doctor kept saying, no, nah, it's nothing to worry about. Keep taking it. He didn't. Thankfully, because lactic acidosis, if severe enough, kills about 30% of the people, even if hospitalized, maybe because, precisely because they're hospitalized, maybe if they stay at home, they wouldn't die uh, in such high numbers. But long story short, um, I basically started giving him uh, a progesterone about four to five years ago, and uh, he lost most of his excess weight without counting calories. I mean, 
he's in Bulgaria, and Bulgarians are not very famous for for the dietary regimens or adhering to things like Weight Watchers and whatnot. Uh, he's also fairly setting his ways. He's he's not exactly going to change and uh, you know uh, embark on a diet. Mm. So just by using progesterone, a little bit of methylene blue, um, he was able to bring his blood sugar from about 180 to 200. So it wasn't a very severe type of diabetes um, back down into the 90s. Uh, so he that's just by uh, you know that's just by doing these the, two. And he doesn't use the, the the he doesn't use the progesterone and the methylene blue every day. Uh, but he does use aspirin on a very regular basis, and that's something that most European countries seem to do as by default. It's like the old remedy, old grandma's remedy. Um, so to answer your question, I mean, it's tough. Like you can't just go and impose on older people what you think is the works really well for them. I think you also had an experience with your dad, where he had a health issue, and uh, he like he would ask for things for you to send him, but when you send them, he would ignore them, right? <laughs> Um, and he would kind of like he would like uh, yo-yo between what his doctor tells him and what you tell him. It's really it's really hard because you don't want something to happen and then you know your relative is blaming you for that, right? Um, so you can provide some information. I wouldn't be forceful with it because we can all make mistakes. Um, but as far as you know, older people in their seventies go, very few things can go wrong with aspirin and something like methylene blue and you know progesterone and. Or even just eating anti-inflammatory foods like gelatin. Um, one of my parents' good friends had really severe problems with his joints to the point that now this is a very it's very fashionable in Eastern Europe right now to get hip replacement surgery. It's like a sign of status because mm-hmm. you can, you, ha- you have to pay out of pocket. There, there's really no insurance to start with, but you have to pay out of pocket for that specific one. But um, he didn't like it. He was, He's a biologist himself, so he kind of suspects that uh, that, that surgery is, is it's a pretty severe, it's pretty stressful surgery. It's about eight hours. Um, so he d- he didn't want to go um, and do the surgery despite the doctors heavily advertising it and saying that's the only thing that can fix you. But he started eating a spoonful of gelatin, tablespoon a day, and over six months, it seems that the erosion of his bones in the hip bone has been completely reversed. Or at the very least, he's functional. He doesn't feel any pain. So he feels perfectly fine. So long story short, you cannot impose, you cannot teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> <laughs> you can only throw these tricks around in the dog's environment. And if the dog likes one of the tricks, he's going to start experimenting with it um, and uh, and hopefully, you know, pick something up that works for them. Um, but, you know, I guess you just don't want to be in the same role as they doctor as a doctor who says you listen to me or you know all hell will break loose it's not a good um, it's not a good situation to be even if you are right um, you know it's it's better to be supportive and and kind of try to steer things in the in the in the right direction by being completely accepting of of their doubts and fears and whatnot um, but as far as interventions you can only suggest I don't think you can implement there um, sometimes it can backfire you know they they may take the wrong dosage and cause more harm than you know than good, and then they will completely ignore you going forward or you know blame you for making things worse. Um, you know, in my case, when I initially suggested things, I was laughed at repeatedly mm-hmm. for probably about a period of, of of a year until one of their friends tried vitamin K for bone problems. Um, you know. The, the problems resolved. Another person tried vitamin K for blood pressure issues that those also resolved. And then my parents started listening to me more and more, right? But it, it took it took a while. I mean, it took, I would say, several years before they 
started taking things more seriously. And not so much, I didn't care so much about taking me seriously as, as I wanted them to start experimenting and seeing for themselves that things worked. So it took a few years, at least with my parents. And my suspicion is most people over 70 are going to be similarly, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, difficult to move, <laughs> difficult to change their minds. Yeah, this is funny. We're talking about this just a few days ago. I was talking to my mom and she had independently uh, found a gelatin product and was taking it and told me that her uh, joints didn't ache anymore and they had for years. And and she just randomly told me that when we were talking. And then I guess the ultimate um, non-interventionalist therapy would be red light. Like you literally you have to do almost nothing, you know, and so. If you if somebody was really resistant to changing anything, you know, it would be it'd be crazy if they were also resistant to just like sitting under a light bulb. <laughs> so um, but that could be something to explore as well. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if they're, you know, older people who spend most of the time sitting on a chair or lying down in bed. I mean, that's, you know, it's kind of dangerous for older people to be immobilized for too long mm-hmm. because blood clots start to form. Mm-hmm. And red light is pretty good at preventing that. Uh, but in general, if that person is lying still, there is no reason not to use the red light because they're not getting much sunlight to start mm-hmm. with. Um, so I think it's yeah, I think that's a very good point. It's very important to uh, get proper uh, red light exposure, um, even without the vitamin D. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, John. Um, another one from John, uh, different John for five dollars. He says, "Any opinion on what causes keratosis uh, pilaris, uh, also called chicken skin, and how to get rid of it?" Um, I know some people who had this develop as a result of vitamin A deficiency. Um, and I know a few people who had this develop as a result of vitamin B deficiency. They, they didn't know which one, but uh, the reason I, I, I'm saying that is because they, they uh, you know, tried taking a vitamin B complex and it disappeared. So it may be just a, you know, just a g- overall uh, sign of, of low metabolism. Um, estrogen excess is known to cause it. Uh, there is a special condition called uh, ichthyosis, which is basically your skin starts looking like the, the skin of a fish. Um, and in, in severe cases, actually, it's a pretty good sign of, of cancer. Uh, people with cancer tend to develop that. But uh, the reason I mention is because that uh, condition is very well known to be caused by estrogen, even in the absence of cancer. Of course, medicine doesn't put two and two and say, oh, so if cancer patients, uh, many of them have ichthyosis, uh, should we check their estrogen maybe? Uh, maybe it's high. Well, they don't do that. But anyways, so high estrogen may be able to, uh, can cause it. Uh, vitamin A deficiency can cause it. Zinc deficiency can cause it. Um, you know, um, in, in an inflammatory reaction can cause it in general, general inflammatory reaction. People with autoimmune skin conditions like psoriasis and lupus tend to uh, have that also as a comorbidity, so-called. Um, so a number of different things to try here, but probably the easiest thing is to eat some liver uh, which has most of these vitamins and minerals that may be lacking, um, and see if see if if it gets if it improves. Uh, next thing to try will be like some aspirin, vitamin E slash progesterone, all the anti-estrogenic remedies. See if that works too. Um, I would do some blood tests just to see where you stand hormonally: cortisol, vitamin D, uh, total cholesterol, um, you know, prolactin, DHEA, just to see you know where where you stand hormonally. Uh, in my experience. Um, the you know high cortisol to androgen ratio or high estrogen to androgen ratio can can cause uh, skin issues, a number of different skin issues. So 
it's not. Um, I think it's good to not look at it, uh, look at it as a specific symptom, but more of a a skin problem is usually indicative of either a digestive issue or a hormonal issue, and they usually go hand in hand. Yeah, for what's worth, I had uh, the the chicken skin on the back of my arms and the side of my legs for basically my entire life, and thyroid and liver make it go away. Um, great stuff. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, uh, John. Another another one from Kirk for ten dollars. Thank you, Kirk. He says I have uh, more, I have more stamina and don't tire as fast with vigorous exercise in the evening when fasting throughout the day. But when eating in the day, I feel the opposite. What could uh, what can this be contributed to? The elevation of the stress hormones. I mean, basically, if you're you know you don't want to be energetic at night. That's usually a sign of elevated stress hormones. Your cortisol should be lowest at around five, 4 to 5 p.m. Um, and actually, if you're feeling energetic at night, which you shouldn't be because the with darkness, um, serotonin rises, so you should actually be getting more sluggish um, as the as the time progresses in the evening. So if you're if you're sluggish in the morning, but uh, or after eating, but you're agitated at night. Uh, it's very often suggested, uh, suggestive of a inverted, so-called inverted cortisol rhythm, diurnal rhythm, and cortisol should be higher in the morning and then lower in the afternoon and early evening. But in in some cases, in people with lower metabolism or elevated stress hormones, in generally activated adrenal system, that rhythm gets reversed. They're actually really sluggish in the morning, especially after eating, and then they kind of slowly wake up, and their their morning starts at 5 p.m. Um, the night owls are actually notorious for that. Uh, and the reason is it's already been confirmed that in, that in night owls, uh, the levels of cortisol at night at 10 p.m. when these people should be sound asleep is, is about as high as it is at 8 o'clock in the morning when it's usually when cortisol is highest in, in healthy people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good stuff. And the only other thing which could contribute is if, if there was some kind of bacteria in the intestine and in eating was causing uh, some kind of, I don't know, bacterial overgrowth, uh, situ- inflammation type of situation. And so that would be another reason that not eating could be helpful, you think? Yeah. 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 And uh, yeah, I mean, basically the the, the, the benefits of, of fasting are mostly, uh, there, isn't, there are several studies I think that were already posted and discussed that they're due mostly to the reduction in endotoxin. Mm-hmm. But after a few days, after two to three days, then then you start getting into the negative territory. Yes, you've reduced endotoxin, but now you've elevated all of your free fatty acids. And guess what? The vast majority of the of the fats that you've stored in your fat tissue is PUFA. That's why it's stored. I mean, if you eat saturated fat, it mostly gets oxidized pretty quickly. Um, so so yeah, it's the reduction of inflammation, reduction of endotoxin. Um, you know the uh, which allows the liver to actually excrete even more endotoxin because it gives it a break. Um, usually when you eat, um, if you have a compromised gut barrier, um, just basically the liver gets overloaded. And if the, the meal is is high in PUFA, that's an additional burden for the liver. So sometimes just stopping eating for a day or two just gives the liver a break and it can start excreting all of that estrogen, uh, all of that estrogen and, and, uh, and endotoxin. And that by itself can, uh, can make you feel really well, just giving the liver a break. I think somebody asked Ray recently, like, what could be the cause of continued feelings of sluggishness and like and fatigue and brain fog, even though these people are taking thyroid um, and eating properly? And Ray's response was some sort of estrogenic overload of the liver, which prevents it from uh, 
getting rid of all the other toxins that are that the body uh, um, generates as part of normal metabolic activity. Great stuff. Thank you, Kirk. Uh, thank you, Georgie. Um, okay, we got we have a few more from Kirk. Another uh, one, he says, one cup of coffee on consecutive days, two plus days, causes head inflammation and makes my skin break out a bit. Uh, what do you think this, uh, why do you think this could happen? Head inflammation? Yeah, he will, um, maybe. What is this condition? Maybe, uh, like people, maybe like your scalp physically hurts. Maybe that's what he means. I think I think he has a low blood sugar. I think that can cause kind of an inflammatory reaction. It's if you're drinking the the coffee um, alone, yeah. Uh, but the other thing is like uh, maybe the coffee is acting like thyroid and increasing nutritional needs, and maybe there's a deficit somewhere. And I don't know what. So what else? If you drink coffee as a metabolic stimulator and your glycogen loads are low, mm-hmm. like if you have a liver dysfunction or sluggish liver mm-hmm. or fatty liver, whatever you want to call it. And you drink that cup of coffee, um, even if your uh, like even if your blood sugar levels are not necessarily dropping too low, anything that causes a cellular glucose deficiency, mm-hmm. because if you don't have enough glycogen, coffee is going to trigger a stress response. The stress response will lead to elevation of free fatty acids, and that will lead to functional glucose deficiency due to the Randall cycle. Any type, any any time the cell experiences functional glucose deficiency. You, you can get an allergic reaction even from air. Like you breathe the slightly polluted air, you can break out in hives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a, that's a study we didn't get to discuss, but they, they showed that you can develop Parkinson's disease by simply inhaling endotoxin, a low dose of endotoxin, over two weeks. <laughs> so so it's it's really it, it really comes down to how much energy your cells have to handle all of the allergens that are f- constantly circulating around. So if you're drinking coffee and it's causing some kind of an inflammatory slash allergic reaction, that's usually an indication that the coffee is taxing your system too much, which you shouldn't be doing if there is if there is sufficient glycogen um, in 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 the system. Um, I don't know. Uh, another other things that seem to help is mixing the coffee with milk or at least or heavy cream actually seems to work even better. And I've noticed that even in very compromised metabolic compromised people, if they drink a latte, even if it, it contains like a triple espresso shot, it would it doesn't cause the jitteriness and the agitation that regular black coffee would cause quite reliably. Even a single espresso shot will cause in these people. Um, so yeah, so the help the scalp itching, the what he calls head inflammation and whatnot, uh, it's probably just an inflammatory reaction or slash allergic reaction from uh, just a stress response in general that coffee is causing, um, and also. If, if your liver is overburdened uh, because caffeine forces the liver to shed its fatty content into the bloodstream, that can also be um, like, a, like a trigger for these, for these kind of skin symptoms. Um, so if you have a fatty liver, that may, be, that may be one of the reasons why this is happening. But over time, I mean, there are multiple studies, and now at this point even humans showing that even like a low dose of caffeine, like 100 milligrams a day over a period of two, three weeks is capable of completely restoring liver health if you're doing it on a regular basis and you're not compensating by i don't know gorging and poof afterwards so uh so it's 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 it should be easy to fix uh or, or reverse if there is an issue with the liver just make sure you drink the coffee with uh, something that buffers the stress effect and and you know just make sure you drink it uh sweet enough so that it doesn't get to a point where it's a with a with a stress trigger instead of a metabolic trigger yeah or or just after food um yeah 
Great stuff. Thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Kirk. Okay, one more from Kirk. He says, um, oh no, there are a few more from <laughs> Okay, guys, uh, maybe we'll it's a pause on the super chats because there's so many. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I sincerely appreciate it, but we probably have to get out of here at some reasonable time. Um, uh, where are we here? Um, okay, Kirk, another one for Kirk he, for $5. Thank you, Kirk. He says, what are the major health benefits of living uh, at high elevation? How long should one be at high elevation? Is 6,500 feet considered high elevation? Uh, I would say anything over 1,500 feet is probably good enough to start producing uh, beneficial effects. Uh, about about 3,000 feet is usually where you start feeling it, really feeling it. And it's probably, for optimal health, I would say... Um, 6,000 feet is probably more than enough. Uh, anything more than that, you start getting into the so-called alpine climate, uh, basically where uh, it's really, it's kind of harsh. I mean, basically, you don't want to be in a situation where, yes, yeah, CO2 levels will be high, but there'll be snow around you most of the year, and it will be like a barren climate where you're not going to be spending much time outdoors because it will not be pleasant to be outside. So about 6,000, you know, 5,500, maybe 5,000 to 6,000 feet, I think is plenty. Um, unless you have severe health issues and you kind of like don't care about the weather and, you know, just want to, you know, you want to take radical measures. So, you know, getting CO2 as high as possible would be imperative. I think five to 6,000 would be fine. But most of the, most of the, uh, the benefits are due to, because of the increase in carbon dioxide, you get a dramatic increase in mitochondrial biogenesis. In fact, athletes uh, and their trainers have known this for at least 100 years they didn't know the direct reason, but they knew that living and training at altitude for about two weeks or longer uh, basically makes you strikingly more endurant when you go back to regular altitude, and this effect persists for a few weeks. So if you're like, uh, you know, many soccer teams actually have training camps at, uh, at high elevation where they would go and train before, let's say, like a World Cup or a European Championship uh, I know the Bulgarian team, actually, most Bulgarian sports teams that, at the national level, they have a like a mountain training base uh, where the elevation is 65, I think, you now actually close to 7,000 feet. Um, and they spend there about two weeks before major events. And then, and then basically, like, they, they, they train there. And then, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a fairly well-known effect. But it's now known to be due to, to the increased retention of carbon dioxide. Another additional benefit is that usually areas of higher elevation tend to have pretty thick uh, forests, and especially the coniferous forests tend to uh, ionize the air, which has a serotonin-reducing effect, which by itself has a very potent pro-metabolic mood-improving and also mitochondrial biogenesis effect as well. So I think the lower, the increased degradation of serotonin because of the ion negatively charged air, which is mimics what the the ionized, the air ionizers that we have in the many people are now buying as a device to have it to have it uh, in their rooms. The being at high elevation uh, imitates that, um, and also being out in nature also seems to uh, have its own um, non-specific, to use the medical term, effect that cannot really be tied to neither carbon dioxide nor serotonin. It's more like being out in nature and experience a connection in nature um, somehow restoring the feeling of meaning of meaningfulness and being one with life that have a that can have a very profound therapeutic effect if you're especially if you're in a very with very compromised health 
Um, I know people who recovered from pretty serious conditions by simply just dropping their daily life, saying the heck with all of it, and then you know going on a vacation for a few weeks up in the mountains. Uh, to the point where I, I've told the story several times, I have a friend from college who still lives in the Tianxian Mountains, and he refuses. His parents are very old. They're in, in their late 80s right now. Uh, and they're in Italy, and he goes. Now, of course, Italy has other issues. Now, he can't go because of the virus. But he says now, the, the last time I talked to him about a year ago, he's like, dude, I can't, I can't handle flying in an airplane. Just like you just don't understand. After being – and he lives at a much higher altitude. I think they, the altitude is 9,000 feet of the that uh, expat community where he mm-hmm. is. And he basically says that after being there for a few months – just a few months is enough. Then when he gets into the airplane, he says that he feels that the air is literally toxic. There's something in that filtration system that makes it very toxic. He's like, I prefer to be in a barn with animals mm-hmm. where I'm smelling fumes of like urine and cow dung and whatnot because it's less toxic than what these air filters are, you know, are, are constantly pumping up. So he refuses to fly. So I think the he tried to go by car, mm. but going from Kyrgyzstan to Italy... That's like I don't know, four thousand miles or something, and you're not, you're not, you're not exactly driving through safe parts of the world. So I think he did that only once, and he gave up on it. But uh, he tries to fly as as as, uh, as as rarely as possible because he says that he feels that that the the air and the airplane is literally killing him. He also claims to be able to feel a very powerful electromagnetic field inside the airplane, which I've actually confirmed myself with my meter. If any if any of you wants to really get scared. Take one of these the EMF meters that uh, that are available on Amazon and take it on a flight. It doesn't have to be a transatlantic or a long long distance flight. Just take it on any any airplane with a jet engine, and you'll see like what kind of readings you're getting. Uh, I'm I'm I don't even know why is this allowed because like the readings are in the danger zone, which technically you know FCC says or is it FDA or FCC? No EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency says. You should not be allowed to actually stay in a in a location like that for more than ten minutes. It's considered hazardous to your health, but apparently not when it comes to the airline industry. You know, they, you you have to fly. <laughs> it, they may be pumping you full of uranium, but you know, as long as it's for the airline industry, all all rules are suspended. Um, anyway, so yeah, living in altitude has a number of different benefits, um, but I think it also has to be balanced with the uh, you do need the human contact. Like I would not go and become a hermit. Just because you know it would be at a higher elevation and you'll be healthier, you'll think will be physiologically healthier. Uh, being surrounded by by calm, healthy, supportive people is one of the most therapeutic things a person can have in their lives. So uh, I would not sacrifice that unless it you know the situation health wise is getting really bad. I would not sacrifice that just for the opportunity to go and live in a mountain. Uh. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, thank you, Georgie. Thank you, Kirk. Um, okay, John. RP said that pregnenolone is not a hormone, but should be thought of as a food supplement slash vitamin. Why is this? Was pregnenolone once found in the human diet? Oh, pregnenolone is still in the human diet. If you eat a lot of organ meats, um, basically, like the it's uh, so the heart, the brain, the liver, the spleen. Um, and I think the uh, the pancreas and the lungs contain 10 to 100 times higher amounts of pregnenolone than is found circulating in the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. So you are eating a significant amount of pregnenolone by simply eating 
of uh, like a you know eight ounce serving of liver. Um, now, I mean, that's the, you don't you don't eat. I think Ray has said you don't need to eat this every day, and it's not actually not good because there's a lot of iron, there's a lot of cysteine and tryptophan. So once every two weeks or like once a week is perfectly fine. And it also happens to be his long-standing recommendation for pregnenolone. He says that a single dosage of about uh, you know like an asp- size of an aspirin tablet, which means 300, 350 milligrams weekly, once weekly is enough. Um, and that's how much you're probably going to get um, if you eat a decent, decent serving of liver. Um, you're going to get a lot more if you're eating brain. Uh, actually, the brain has the highest concentration of pregnenolone, higher than any other steroid, including progesterone. Inclu- I think it has a lot of uh, DHA, or depending on, I guess, what the animal ate, right? Right, right. But like, it's, the brain is notorious for, for concentrating more pregnenolone than any other steroid uh, and having... Uh, at least 100 times higher concentrations if you're healthy, of course, mm-hmm. um, or the animal is healthy. That's how it should be. But it's in, in any event, it's higher than the blood, in many many times higher. Now, I think the reason it's not considered a hormone officially is because it has very weak interaction with the known steroid hormone receptors. So pregnenolone is not really a, an agonist um, or antagonist on, on uh, most of the known receptors um, um, the steroid receptors, but it does have indirect antagonistic effects on the activation of the cortisol receptor. So uh, pregnenolone will not prevent cortisol to bind with the glucocorticoid receptor and activate it, uh, which is what a traditional glucocorticoid antagonist like progesterone would do, which is an actual steroid, right? Um, but pregnenolone would prevent the complex of the receptor and the steroid hormone uh, from translocating to the nucleus, which is part of the whole response of what how cortisol causes all of the negative downstream effects um, that it does. So in, in effect, uh, pregnenolone is a functional cortisol antagonist, but not a direct one at the receptor level. So that's probably one reason why um, it has the reputation of being inert, because when the initial studies were done, they were mostly done in vitro, and pregnenolone was not found to bind or you know have a very strong or direct interaction with any of the steroid receptors. But uh, it can, uh, for example, it's now known to antagonize the, the the CRH receptor, which is the receptor through which the stress cascade is triggered, the the corticotropin releasing hormone receptor, uh, pregnenolone and progesterone are two of the strongest antagonists on that receptor. Um, but as far as I think the reason P doesn't consider it an actual steroid is because most of its effects are indirect and or through conversion into other steroids that are known to have a traditional steroid effect as well. But make no mistake, pregnenolone is functionally very, very steroid-like, even if it's not directly you know, steroid-acting. Um, it can correct deficiencies. It can block functional excess or deficiency of a specific steroid, even if it doesn't necessarily correct the levels. So, for example, it's well known that hypogonadism, or in other words, testosterone deficiency, triggers infertility in males. It has been known since the 90s. Yeah, back. I'm sure. So, pregnenolone uh, just, just, just is known uh, to have just, a. Just a second. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we. Okay, we're. I think we're streaming again. Let's just get um, confirmation. In the chat that we're still good. Um, we still good. I, I mean, uh, everything looks okay. Okay, we'll we'll just keep going. You were on. You were 
talking about um <laughs> yeah, I, I was giving an example that you know, let's say, like, if you have low testosterone, you will be in, uh, if it's specific, if it's significantly low, if you're in a hypogonadal levels, you'll be infertile as a male, right? Because the spermatogenesis um, and the maturation and the movement and the motility of sperm depends on testosterone. Mm -hmm. It's well known. In fact, one of the treatments for hypogonadism, actually, the standard treatment for hypogonadism triggered infertility, is to administer testosterone. Mm -hmm. But it's it's been known since the 1920s is that you can actually achieve, you can have high, better, stronger therapeutic effect on fertility by administering pregnenolone while at the same time without correcting the hypogonadism. So, so you see like pregnenolone is capable of correcting the, the effects of a testosterone deficiency without necessarily restoring the, 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 the levels of, of testosterone to normal, to pre, to, in a, without correcting the hypogonadism, pregnenolone is capable of correcting some of the effects of hypogonadism. So I like to think of it as a functional st steroid-like molecule, even if, even if it's not a directly receptor-binding one. It, it does have receptor-binding properties. It's an antagonist of the aldosterone receptor, pretty potent one, and of the CRH one, but compares, in comparison to other steroids uh, more well-known, it, it, it does seem inert when it comes to the receptor activity. But it's very, very active when it comes to correcting functional deficiency and or excess or downstream effects or downstream uh, negative effects or of, of a specific steroidal excess or deficiency. Great stuff. Thank you for that, Georgie. And um, who's the person that asked? Uh, thank you, John. Okay, we have seven questions left, so we'll, we'll uh, have to invoke brevity. Um, John, again, for uh, ZGR, thank you so much, John. So many chronic supporters. It's, thank you guys. Sincerely appreciate it for $20. Thank you. He says, I don't eat uh, green leafy vegetables rich in lutein and zeanth uh, zeanthin. Uh, so is su no. supplementing lutein and zeanthin for eye health um, uh, a good idea or is it worthless? Is it helpful in preventing vision problems? And perhaps to improve vision. Uh, I think that he's, he he call, talks about the zeaxanthin, mm -hmm. which is like a retinol. Uh, it's a beta carotene type molecule, um, but most of its effects on eyesight have been shown to be due to its antioxidant effects. So uh, it's not a coincidence. There are also multiple other studies shown that simply taking vitamin E can actually dr drastically improve um, eye, eye health and vision simply by preventing the. Um, the 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 formation of lipofuscin and the many other negative effects from elevated PUFA, um, and of course vitamin A. So in my experience, in my opinion, based on the study I've seen, is vitamin A and E can do a lot more for your vision than lutein and zeaxanthin. Those are relatively uh, exotic molecules that are found in vegetables, and I don't think they're essential in the in the sense that if you don't take them bad things will you know happen to your vision that cannot be corrected otherwise mm -hmm. it's mostly related to uh, most of the vision problems stem from declining mitochondrial function which is a study that i had on the blog we didn't get to talk about but staring at red light for just three minutes a day was able to restore declining vision in older people it was a human study so it directly implicated the decline in mitochondrial function in declining vision so there you go no need to supplement the exciting lutein and also other studies have shown that things like cataracts and glaucoma are mostly due to the peroxidation of PUFA and its interaction with iron. And both vitamin E can actually uh, you know, protect from both. 
and I don't think Zeaxanthin or lutein can can uh, can can uh, have an effect on either one. I think most of the benefits that are seen from these from these chemicals come from their antioxidant effect. Great stuff. Um, thank you for that, Georgie. Thank you for that, John. Okay, Harry Burgos for ten dollars. Thank you, Harry, chronic supporter of the show. Uh, no message. Diana Orbello Glenn for fourteen ninety nine. Thank you so much, Diana. Another chronic supporter of the show. Cardo Chav um, four ninety nine. Uh, Sino Plus, uh, how are you taking it all at once, split up through the day, adding supplemental T3 at all? Just wondering, uh, 120 micrograms of T4 and 30 micrograms of T3 seems like a lot for one day. Um, so I, I am taking Sino Plus at the moment, and it depends how like active I am. I just, since the place I'm, I won't bore people with the details, the place where I'm living right now is... Pr- probably about as uh, not optimal as it gets. <laughs> so I bumped up my <laughs> Sinoplast dosage to two grains. And this is just my for myself, but I'm taking one grain in the morning, one grain in the evening, and some T3 in the afternoon. And so that's generally how, how I do it. And then I have a milligram scale, and I always measure out the doses because I think um, measuring them on a scale is just ridiculously inaccurate. And so that's two-thirds of a Sinoplast tablet, which is about three grains. Um, but I, I always try to listen to the pulse and temperature and the, the obvious hypothyroid symptoms. Um, but Georgie, what, I know you've experiment, experimented with Sinoplus and also your product Tyromix as well. Um, I don't take thyroid on a regular basis. I only take it as needed. Uh, I found that progesterone and pregnenolone and DHEA can, do, um, can provide like the same effects but I seem to be able to tolerate those better and to be able to, I don't know, better manipulate the dosages, for lack of a better word. Uh, however, uh, if I feel like I'm coming down with the flu, whether it's due to endotoxin or truly something related to a virus, especially in the winter months, um, nothing beats uh, a tablet of Sinomel, um, 25 micrograms. And I usually split it in half and I take it like, you know, I take the two halves, one in the morning and one at night. Um, but as far as like taking thyroid on a regular basis so far i haven't found the need for it and i struggle with with finding the correct dosages i seem to very easily go into hyperthyroid state um and then i try to taper down and and then basically like then i because of the suppression of the thyroid uh i usually experience like a few days of hypothyroidism so then i I either have to ramp up the dose and, and and find like the sweet spot again or I usually reach back for my progesterone um, and DHEA, and usually <laughs> that's what I use. Even those I don't use on a daily basis, maybe like two or three times a week. Um, it's like uh, I found that, uh, just like Ray said, the quality of dreams seems to be pretty indicative, good indication of health. Uh, if you have in nightmares, uh, that's a pretty good indication that serotonin is high. And if serotonin is high, your metabolism cannot be op- cannot be operating well. Um, so, so basically I, I take the pro metabolic substances, um, based on, you know, my, my experience with sleep and with, with my dreams. If I sleep well, if I don't wake up at night, um, you know, to like have to drink something sweet and, or, or, and, or salty, uh, if I don't have foamy urine, if I don't have nightmares, um, I usually don't use the, the, the steroids at all. Um, I would take aspirin, uh, maybe like if I feel like it, but Knock on wood, so you know these days I'm mostly going by symptoms, um, and to me that's a huge improvement. There were just a few years ago, you know, I just could not walk around unless I was loaded up on cyproheptadin. It's just my digestion was so poor. Anything, just anything I was eating, would either give me like brutal constipation or like really like 
diarrhea to the point where I was not able to function. Just had to like be always within a, within a <laughs> within a jump, a short jump of the of the restroom. Um, Cyproheptin seems to have fixed that, uh, or at least you know like uh, made it to the point where it's not an issue. I don't I don't experience that anymore unless I eat something extremely extremely spicy. But I found that with age, I'm starting to lose taste for like very spicy foods. I still enjoy the occasional spiciness, but I don't I don't like hot anymore. Um, and that's the only thing that can so far throw off uh, my digestion off balance. Um, alcohol used to do the same thing, um, especially beer, which is highly estrogenic. But, you know, again, I found that vitamin E, eugenol, which is a very interesting molecule uh, Pete has mentioned to a few people lately, um, progesterone, pregnenolone, um, you know, uh, I have a little bit of exemestain, which I don't use. I mean, I use very, very sporadically, but I found that estrogen is actually the primary driver of digestive discomfort as a result of alcohol drinking. I think it's just the alcohol by itself, whether it's beer or not, it tends to have a very strong pro-estrogenic effect independently of endotoxin, um, and doing anything to restrain that estrogenic, um, uh, downstream response seems to be a uh, highly therapeutic. So, you know, the, the, I have school friends that are my age, early forties. Um, and you know, like, uh, now when we go out, they will have a beer and they'll be ready to go home because they can't handle anymore. And we've had like, <laughs> we had one drinking contest. One of them had a birthday and I was able to down 12 beers. And they said, dude, what's going on? Like, we haven't seen you do this since you were 20. Not that's, you know, it's not something that, that, that should be done or it needs to be done, but it, I was, I took, you know, precautionary measures in advance, took some examestain, took a hefty dosage of pregnenolone, um, and uh, by limiting the estrogenic response, I was able to handle alcohol um, as, as I was, as you know, as if I was in, in my 20s. Of course, it didn't last, uh, but, you know, it, it shows that, you know, just by controlling the stress mediators, uh, very often you can, at least in my case, I can, I can get by without using any thyroid. Um, or any other like uh, you know uh, metabolically stimulating substance. Just watching the diet and watching your symptoms and responding as needed uh, so far seems to work. Uh, unless you know I, I get derailed by like a disease or something or like severe stress. In that case, I do reach for the thyroid. Great stuff. Uh, thank you for that, Georgie. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you for that. Who Carter Chav? Okay, thank you, Carter Chav. Um, another one from John ZGR for five dollars. Georgie, do you prefer to take uh, calcicer- uh vitamin D three topically or orally slash sublingually? Ever since I discovered the navel route, I've been taking the steroids, uh, including vitamin D, which is a steroid. I've been taking them uh, topically, and it seems to work remarkably well, both in terms of being able to use less. And the effects being more potent and and lasting longer. And now, basically, you know, if 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 in the past when I was using a steroid or a vitamin D, I would I felt the need to take every day. And whether through due to improve health, knock on wood, hopefully that's the that's the main reason. But now, if I just put a few drops of calcium on my belly button, um, I can do this twice a week or even once a week. And then, you know, and I feel perfectly fine. And it, you know, just to, as another confirmation of just how, how correct Ray is, vitamin D seems to be one of the most reliable surrogates of thyroid function and a substitute for it too. Um, I found out that I can replace that, uh, that tablet of 25 micrograms of cytomel with a single dosage 
of 15,000 units of vitamin D applied to the belly button. It has the exact same effect, at least for me. Um, I don't know why, but you know, he said it many times that that uh, they synergize with each other, but they also largely have overlapping effects, and at least in my case, seems to be very accurate. So to answer your question, I prefer it topically. Sometimes I'll take sublingually, which I consider also a form of topical as well. Even though you eventually ingest it slash swallow it, um, the whole point of sublingual is to absorb through the mucosa, through the oral mucosa, and and avoid the first pass metabolism through the liver. So it is a form of topical. Um, um, very few things I just directly ingest. Calcium is one thing. You know, it's just a, if you're taking a few grams of calcium a day, which I now, now do, um, it's... I, I don't. I don't think it's very any easy way of doing it transdermally or even sublingually. You kind of have to ingest it, but everything else uh, seems to work rather well topically. Uh, I want to get into the anti-vitamin D stuff, but I don't. Uh, I don't even know enough to articulate their argument to bounce it off Georgie. So I, if I can't do it well, I shouldn't uh, uh, try to talk about it. Okay, uh, let's get through these. If anybody has problems with vitamin D, try the sublingual and or the navel application and then come back and, and share your experience. I think it's 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 in, uh, incomparable. Um, um, they, there must be something in most vitamin D supplements that, that either irritates the intestine um, or somehow doesn't sit well with the liver. Maybe like if you have like a sluggish liver or like you have high estrogen. I think Ray said that uh, people that are overweight they tend to either not react well to vitamin D or need dramatically higher dosages to respond to it. Mm -hmm. That does not seem to be an issue with sublingual and or belly button application. So try one of these and see 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 if your experience is if your experience with vitamin D changes for the better. Uh, my suspicion is it will it change for the better. Great stuff. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Georgie. Linda Bell for five dollars. Good evening. Good evening, Linda. Thank you for that. Uh, Michelle for ten dollars. Uh, it's a number one fan gift. Thank you for that, Michelle. Um, and Sweeney Jordan for $19.99. Wow, you guys uh, are really coming out this evening. Thank you. Um, Anne says, thank you, Georgie and Danny. I was wondering what uh, would cause the heart rate to go up about 20 to 25 beats just standing up and walking around. Is it adrenaline and what could help? Um, actually, I think sudden sudden drop in blood pressure can trigger like a, like a rebound effect. So orthostatic hypotension, I think is what it's called. If you're squatting for a while and then you suddenly get up, you get dizzy and like uh, like lightheaded. But if you actually pay attention to your heart rate, you'll notice that is it probably as a rebound effect, you'll get like a like a rapid surge in heartbeat, uh, probably like in, in the low hundreds sometimes. And I think that's that uh, the heart overcompensates for the drop in blood pressure by basically like uh, increasing the uh, the initial activity. Until the, the 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 provision of blood to all the organs is normalized, and then and then it, it goes back to normal. Um, but in general, like if you have that issue, chances are your resting heart rate is probably too low for comfort. You're probably averaging somewhere in your 60s when uh, when you're at rest. I think anything lower than 80, uh, or actually lower than 75, I would say anything lower than 75 is probably indicative of a lower than optimal thyroid function. And if you're in your 60s, then I think it's a problem, even though doctors love it. In fact, some consider it even high, that, that even that's too high. Mm -hmm. They want you to be in your 40s. And if you're in your 30s, you're a champion, <laughs> you know, not long before you're turning to a mummy. Um, but uh, yeah, so I would watch the resting heartbeat. And if it's uh, if it's if it's 60 or below, 
that may be uh, an explanation of why it suddenly surges when you actually start uh, exerting yourself because it's an overcompensation uh, reaction trying to supply blood to all, all the organs, considering that metabolism is lower. Okay, the home stretch here. Thank you, Ann. Thank you, Georgie. Uh, Kirk, and again, thank you so much, Kirk, for five dollars. He says, "What is the best way to take twenty milligrams of progesterone?" I've heard, uh, I've heard to put it on the gums, but it made my teeth and gums very sensitive. Uh, again, navel, sublingual, <laughs> uh, skin. Uh, you know, if you, if you believe the study, about fifty percent absorption is not bad at all. Um, thinner, like basic areas of the of the body with thinner skin, such as the neck. Uh, temples are actually pretty good, but it does. Uh, the studies show that uh, uh, most of the effects will be localized to the brain. Nothing wrong with that, but just be careful because if you apply, you know, a higher dosage, it, like if you apply the same dose and most of it goes to the brain, it may like knock you out or make you very drowsy. So if you're driving cars or like operating machinery and or like you know, out in public, just don't do that. <laughs> be, try it at home first and see how it affects you. Uh, ears, basically another area. Uh, with with thinner skin where you can apply neck, um, like um, uh, armpits are also like a, an area with thinner skin. Um, and then like the top of the feet is another area. The the uh, inside of the uh, of the knees or the opposite side of the knees were basically like they're, they're concave and not convex. That area is also pretty, it has like thinner skin. Um, there are quite a few areas where you can apply. It's just, a, um, you know, uh, just a matter of, what what kind of effects you're looking for? The more the closer to the torso or on top of the torso you apply, the more systemic the effects. Uh, the more the, the the further out to the extremities you apply, the more localized. So if you have an issue with your feet and you apply on the feet, you will work greatly there. I don't know how much will reach the actual uh, you know the rest of the the rest of the body, um, but you know for for systemic effects. Usually the armpits and the shoulders and the neck seem to work pretty well because they're skinner, thinner skin and also very well supplied major major blood vessels going through there. So should work. Uh, thank you for that, Georgie. And, so, <laughs> and thank you for that, Kirk. Uh, okay, uh, another one from John. Thank you so much, uh, John ZGR. He says, what would cause frequent changes in testicle size and firmness fluctuations in estrogen slash prolactin question mark? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the latter two, in my experience, um, also surging cortisol, uh, because cortisol can actually can elevate and drop pretty quickly. Um, there is the diurnal pattern, but also any, any, any time you're experiencing even mild stress, cortisol surges. Um, and conversely it inhibits if, if, uh, which is supposed to happen, it lowers the uh, the levels of ACTH in a feedback mechanism, in a negative feedback mechanism. That's how it's supposed to work. And usually, like a sudden drop in ACTH is known, very well known, to uh, to cause a, a, a decrease in the size of the gonads. But also, just the cortisol itself is known to to shrink the gonads, and so does estrogen. Um, there was a blog post that made just a few months ago showing that pregnenolone can protect from that precise atrophy, which is you know, well, maybe I shouldn't call atrophy, but it is. I mean, if you if you have a decline in the size, decrease in the size, it is a type of atrophy. Uh, it can protect from the shrinking of the testicles caused by estrogen, cortisol, and androgenic anabolic hormones through a suppressive mechanism. So, pregnenolone does that by by opposing the effects of all of these um, all of these substances. So, one thing to try. But in general, you know, maybe not a good idea to do a hormonal profile. You know, if your prolactin is high, and if it's chronically high. 
uh, there may be other things that need to be addressed. You know, maybe your calcium intake is low. Maybe your, uh, you know, like your, your thyroid is low. Maybe your uh, parathyroid hormone is high. Uh, they usually, prolactin and PTH tend to go hand in hand. Um, you know, clearly if prolactin is high, estrogen is going to be elevated too. So all of these things, uh, probably not a bad idea to to assess and address if there is like a specific area. Like, um, um, And if you do any of the prolactin, PTH, vitamin D, serum calcium is also important to test. Um, that's usually a very good indication if you're like if you're if your serum calcium and phosphorus if you test if the uh, if the uh, serum phosphorus is in the upper 25th percentile and serum calcium is in the bottom 25th percentile your metabolic health cannot possibly be be optimal uh, just the, the calcium to the phosphate ratio will be too low um, and you know uh, one reason why Pete recommends eating high calcium because it's just that ratio is so fundamental for proper metabolism. Fructose and sugars in general, like the simple carbs, like glucose, fructose, sucrose, um, trechylose, maltose, all of these tend to lower, to increase the excretion of phosphate uh, and consequently raise the calcium to phosphate ratio. Niacinamide is really also good. It's very good at lowering phosphate and lowering PTH. In fact, there are several clinical trials with humans uh, and niacinamide is being used for chronic kidney disease precisely because it lowers the elevated phosphate, which is known to be elevated in kidney patients, and also lowering the PTH, which is also high in kidney patients. Yeah, I could ask you more about that, but I'll um, restrain myself. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, two more, and then we'll uh, call it a day. Uh, Carter? We, we did a lot more than seven, man. <laughs> Didn't we? Uh, t- or, or like, I think because you said I, like seven more. I think we added there was one added one, but oh, okay. the, the, so technically right. this should be the last one. But there are two short ones. Okay, Cardo Chef for again four ninety. Thank you so much, Cardo Chef. He says uh, I keep getting the question of MB's teratrogenic uh, uh, ter- effects. Not sure whether uh, where they're finding this. Have you seen anything about this, Georgie? You know, metal in blue. Yeah, is that is that what it means? Yeah, MB's. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth. We actually did a study with Oxidal, um, and the study was done by the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences, and I can send you the link. It's already published. Specifically for teratogenic effects of methylene blue, it had none. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but it prevented the teratogenic effects of several known mutagens uh, and teratogens, um, and it did so uh, both at low and high dosages. So I don't know where where these studies are coming from, but our own studies did not show any of that. In fact, it was, uh, methylene blue was protective. Um, I don't think there is much to worry about if you're using the, you know, the the dosages shown to be optimal for metabolism, which are in the you know milligram to two milligram range daily. Um, the human studies with 15 milligrams daily did not show any negative side effects, and some of those patients were women too, uh, and I think some of them were pregnant. There were no teratogenic effects at 15 at a dosage of 15 milligrams daily for several weeks. Uh, those studies were done for mental health disorders. Uh, but if you're using one to two milligrams, which seems to be the amount necessary to achieve that optimal concentration of about 100 nanomoles per liter, which was shown to uh, have like reverse um, aging of skin cells and reverse progeria in an animal model, um, those concentrations are achievable with just a milligram for most people, maybe up to two milligrams if you're a really heavy, bulky person. And at that dosage, I just don't think there is any evidence that methylene blue is teratogenic. Uh, the studies that I have seen used millimolar 
concentrations, which would require five to about five to eight grams of methylene blue in a single dose to achieve that concentration. I really hope you're not using that much. I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you're taking that much methylene blue, you will turn so blue physically. Um, I think there'll be much bigger issues to worry about than teratogenicity. Um, I mean, the doctors will probably lock you up for like trying to kill yourself. Um, you know, so that's, that, that'll be the least of your worries, like that it, it will be teratogenic. But yeah, um, in millimolar concentrations, probably, uh, I would say if you overdo water, uh, if you take like if you drink heavily water without concern for your electro for your electrolyte balance as a pregnant woman, you you're very likely to harm your fetus and call, cause a teratogenic effect. But methylene blue in one to two milligrams daily, I just don't think there is any evidence uh, to worry about it. Okay, last one. Uh, thank you so much, Carter Chav. Thank you, Georgie. John for five dollars says, "What brand calcium does Georgie take, and how many grams?" Thank you very much. Uh, I recently found a brand on Amazon. I'm blanking on the name, uh, but it's calcium carbonate, um, and it it comes in in capsules. There there are no additives, at least not on the label. And I've I've been using it for about a month now. I don't feel any negative side effects from it. But I wanted to up my calcium intake, um, and it seems like a supplementation is the only reliable way to do it because I just can't bring myself up to drinking like half a gallon of milk a day. Um, I found a, 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 a brand of milk that uh, ultra high pasteurized, like the ultra milk by Horizon Valley, or, or, or but for some reason it has disappeared. Anytime I like a product and I start buying it, the Whole Foods and the Safeway and then all the others that carry it, they, they, I think they stop carrying it. I think the issue is a friend of mine works as a marketing consultant for some of these big companies. He actually says that they actively monitor what, what products become popular. Mm-hmm. And then they withdraw them uh, from the market. They basically go uh, an internal review to find out whether this surge in popularity is like a, it's just like a, a fad or if the product is really popular, in which case they withdraw it from the market and they return it, usually diluted or in a smaller packaging and or a higher price. Mm-hmm. So, so be careful. If you like a product and if you find something in your local store, be careful how often you buy it because the, the vendor who is producing it and or the store selling it are, are very carefully monitoring uh, the, you know, the, the purchasing behavior of you and of other people doing it. And, you know, um, you know m- many truly good products can become victims of their own success. But to answer the question, I'm using a calcium carbonate product and it seems to work really well. Uh, take about 10, 10 capsules daily, which provides about two and a half grams on top of what I get from milk. Which vary, which usually varies between one and two grams daily from diet. So, um, you know, on a on a really good day, I may get up to like four and a half grams, which gets me closer to Maasai territory. <laughs> awesome, thank you, Georgie. Thank you, uh, John. I think it was the person that asked it. Okay, follow us on bitshoot.com/slash/dannyrody. I'm uploading everything regularly. I've gotten into a system of timestamping these and converting them and uploading it to like six different platforms after. So I hope you guys appreciate that. Um, go to anchor.fm it, uh, and you can click on the link to Spotify. If you, if you prefer to listen to us that way on um, uh, there's Spotify now, that's the big news. Uh, follow me on Twitter, follow Georgie on Twitter at hate it. Uh, Telegram, if you are into that, uh, on the Danny Roddy weblog on Instagram. I try to post food things on there, and I've been posting some podcast stuff on there as well. 
idealabsdc.com georgie supplement co- uh, company uh that he has unique uh, boutique products on there you should go check out i do coaching on dannyroddy.com slash resources georgie dinkov any parting words uh, <laughs> maybe i should do the rating um i don't know i mean uh let's hope that uh that person that we discussed before the show started, let, let's hope he's not right. Oh, yeah. I mean, on one hand, I'm seeing some some positive development because I think that whole pandemic, whether it's real or hoax, just pick your pick your side. Um, it's destroying a lot of fake structures in our society. Um, you know, just that part that, that part is encouraging. I'm seeing some people walking away from like toxic mortgages that they couldn't afford. And under regular circumstances, they will be simply destroyed. The bank will like take away the house. They will owe a ton of money. They'll have to file for bankruptcy, but now they're able to get out of it. Uh, I'm seeing some other people basically like uh, um, who are getting killed lifestyle at work. Now the company is saying, oh, you can work remotely. So they packed up and go, went to like closer to their families and parents and grandparents and having a much better quality of life in terms of uh, social interaction. Um, A lot of fake businesses. I don't want, maybe they're not fake, but uh Many businesses that really didn't apparently didn't really contribute much of, of, of value to our society are now closing doors. Uh, many of these food fast food chains are filing for bankruptcy. Uh, some of these really expensive luxury clothes stores that you can't really understand why people were willing to pay. I don't know five hundred dollars for like a I don't know a a, a, a toga for a yoga, um, but uh, some of these are going out of business too. Um, but there's also the negatives, right? Basically, the suicide rates are up. The you know drug abuse, alcohol uh, abuse, all, these are all up. Um, I'm hoping that it will be serve as a wake up call that uh, you know there are many good things that can happen, um, but we need to be aware that um, there there are powers out there. Just like what was his name, Ram Emanuel? He said, "Never let a good crisis go to yeah, waste." Yeah. So just as we as regular people are using this to restructure our lives and reset. And and make 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 them more meaningful. There are dark forces out there that will use those same crises to make our lives that much more difficult. So, so uh, be on the lookout. Be careful, uh, and don't let a good crisis go to waste. But make sure it's a positive change in your life, and you know, just be on the lookout for the people who will use that those crises to harm you. Great stuff. Okay, next week will probably be no stream, and then the week after, Georgie will join me again, and Ray will be there as well. And so we'll not the next week, but the week after. We should have something before the end of the month. Okay, guys, thank you. Let me, <laughs> guys, thank you so much staying up late with us, Georgie Dinkov. Thank you for joining me. You make these so fun, my Bul- Bulgarian brother. Thank you so much. Uh, sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, everybody watching. Thank you, all future listeners, uh, listeners on um, Spotify, etc. You guys are amazing. We have an amazing audience. Very fortunate. And have a safe weekend. And join us again, not this week, but the week after for Mr. Raymond Pete. Okay, guys. Take care. Have a Thank great you. weekend. Okay. Stay, stay safe. <laughs> Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, 
Pacer Technologies, the high-flying hardware computer company which took a nosedive this year, may be bought out by the British firm Applied Computer Technologies. Piloting the space shuttle is very difficult to do, one would think. Can a, a, a kid or a normal person actually pull this off? Well, what I did when I designed this was I, I understood that problem. Uh, it seems the sweep of technology has no limits. San Francisco this week, the world's first robot bartender was unveiled. The robot can talk and take spoken orders and can mix 200 different drinks. But on the first test run, the robot knocked the glass off the bar and onto the floor and poured beer all over the counter. The robot's designer said there were still some bugs to be worked out.
Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. I know this is a formidable technical task, one that may not be accomplished by Victor Technologies, the high-flying hardware computer company which took a nosedive this year, may be bought out by the British firm Applied Computer Technologies. Piloting the space shuttle is very difficult to do, one would think. Can a, a, a kid or a normal person actually pull this off? Well, what I did when I designed this was I, I understood that problem. Uh, it seems the sweep of technology has no limits. In San Francisco this week, the world's first robot bartender was unveiled. The robot can talk, can take spoken orders, and can mix 200 different drinks. But on the first test run, the robot knocked a glass off the bar and onto the floor and poured beer all over the counter. The robot's designer said there were still some bugs to be worked out.